Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Radio. <laughs> oh, great! It's off to a good start. I see already. Doing the episode is... <laughs> already. We totally started on a crap. Do it over. Start the music again. 
God. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Okay. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> I pre- I pre- I predict that this, this episode uh, will be one that people will go back to and listen again and again and again and again because we'll be talking about the Boland's pythons. Um, yep. We've had very a lot of the guests that are on tonight um, have been on the show before. Um, yeah, no but, cool. Yeah, yep. Uh, but this time we're going to do it roundtable style, um, which is going to put tons of info, and um, you know, uh, the guests will be able to talk to each other back and forth because, like we always said, oh, and we, yeah, uh, you know, we're not experts by any stretch of the means, Dude, but God, tonight no. <laughs> we are joined by. Dare I say the pinnacle of the keepers of the Bolins well, pythons? I mean, yeah, and that's the other thing is that we're really out of our element now because I do not have Bolin eye, and neither do you. So it's like we really have no freaking idea what's going on here, or like no one really wants to hear our interpretation of Bolin's pythons. But out of the people that we got on here, you're talking about all these guys have them, all these guys seen them. Some have even gone to the wild and tracked them down. So it's like this is it's the brain trust of Bolin Eye. I mean, this is pretty much everybody you want to talk to. So if you're considering Bolins, this is definitely a show to listen to. What should you do? What's the matter? Did you mute? Where are you? So, <laughs> I'm right here. <laughs> uh, God, don't leave me there. Anyway, <laughs> don't leave me on my own devices. That's horrible. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this oh, is yeah, a return I mean, of you as well. I mean, last week you left me high and dry to uh, <laughs> to was, do the show all by myself. It was completely by accident. I know. I felt so bad. It was one of those, I'm like, I, call, I talked to you earlier in the week. I'm like, hey, I got to go to a family dinner thing, which... Most of my family knows that you never schedule anything on Tuesdays because of the show. But every once in a while, I get, like, absolutely, like, outvoted to, like, an extreme. So this is one of those times. So you were just going to do the show with Zach, and then Zach had the uh, family emergency. So it was just you. And I'm coming back from the restaurant with my father, and we're listening to the show, and I was very tempted to call in. Like, as I was driving in the car with Jim, but I refrained. I kind of held it back. But yeah, you did well from what I hear. You know, you don't need me anymore. Jesus Christ. So <laughs> No, I do, because clearly it is very hard <laughs> to talk for three hours by yourself. Well, but, I did have oh. Chris along with me, but, oh, my goodness. That was uh, that was quite a, uh, quite a, quite a feat, but... We're back. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So yeah, we're gonna hit on uh, some various topics, and um, you know, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to hit on all the topics and that we uh, have uh, coming up. So, uh, what we'll do is we will just go through and let these guys introduce themselves, and um, you, know, uh, you know, tell us uh, really kind of what got them into Bowling's Pythons. I don't know if Owen, you mm-hmm. have anything else you want to hit on before we get going, or I got nothing. So let's let's jump into this because I don't want to waste another second talking to you and I. So <laughs> 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 
<laughs> Very well then. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Go ahead, Owen. You take it away. All right. So, guys, um, welcome everyone to the show. This is the most uh, guests we've had on the entire time at once. Is probably the biggest roundtable we've had cooking. Uh, so, what I want everybody to do is uh, I want you guys to introduce yourselves. Um, I want you to talk about you know a few points of what got you into Bolins and what size of a of Bolins do you actually have. And we're going to go down the list, so we're going to start with Ari. Um, uh, I got to be Ari, the first one. You do because yes, um, <laughs> you know the drill more than other people here. So, okay. what got you into the Bolins and and how many you working with it all at once? So, and um, okay. you. Um, so, I feel like I'm in the middle of an interview right now. My name's Ari. <laughs> I like Bolin's Python. Um, I think, uh, I think what really got me into it was, um, being young in a ever-increasing hobby and coming across these very few images of this snake that, uh, there was hardly any information basically pertaining to at the time, or even still now, it's still limited, but... Um, back then, it was like nothing, and uh, seeing mm-hmm. just how incredible this animal looked, uh, how it captivated me as uh, just an animal that I'd never seen, never heard about. Uh, if I mentioned the name, the whole room would basically, you know, shut up, and everybody would be like, "What are you? What are you talking about? A bull's python? You know, kind of that, uh, that kind of a scenario." <laughs> so I, I think it really had that mysticism with it, uh, just the. Um, uh, the, the way it captivates uh, somebody when you walk into a room, you see this animal mm-hmm. as opposed to something else. It just really draws you to it, and it just—it's—it's it's a very different animal from everything else I've ever had a chance to work with, and, and uh, that seems to be a very familiar statement by uh, Bowen's keepers that it's just something that's uh, different. It's a different entity. So I guess that would probably be my uh, my little uh, spiel right there for you. So uh, next, <laughs> <laughs> well, how how many are you working with right now? All right. I've, I'm uh, currently I have 2.2, two, uh, and uh, they're ranging from a uh, early 2012s and late 2013. All right, so let's move on to the Viking uh, Casper. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what is it that brought you to Bolins, and uh, how many are you working with? Well, pretty much. Um... What got me into bones were the uh, the Morelia genus. Um, when I saw the first picture of uh, a jungle cover pattern um, back in the days, uh, I of course uh, used uh, Google to search a lot uh, for information about Morelia in general. So uh, I stumbled across the first picture of uh, bones pythons back in the days, and could not believe my eyes. So uh, it was lost from first sight, pretty much. And, uh, <laughs> okay. Back then, I searched a lot of information. There wasn't a lot of information out there, but the information I gathered was that they made crabby captives. So I pretty much gave up the whole uh, idea of ever keeping them, which uh, in 2011 changed when uh, I bought my first pair and later went totally nuts when Frederick produced the first quadrus. So uh, that's pretty much Perfect. it. Perfect. <laughs> and okay, right and, now uh, I work with nine nine pieces. Nine, nine? bone and I. Yes. 
Jesus. A 10-year-old male that's pretty much just for uh, education. Um, mm-hmm. When people want to uh, see a bull and I always take that male and, and show them. And then I have a pair of uh, 2011s that are what you call farm babies. Um, okay. And then I have 1.2 from uh, Frederick's first clutch in 2013. Mm-hmm. And another pair from uh, his second clutch in 2014, um, which was from another pair. And then I have a single female from 2012, which is all, also a uh, farm bread. Okay. Well, that's, cool. you got that's the my farm there. Yep. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Uh, I guess you. Hey, Chad, you're next up on my list. Uh, Chad, why don't you tell us what's going on with uh, your what brought you to Bowens and how many you got kicking around? Um, when I started doing reptiles, I think I told you guys the last time I was on, my, my technical mm-hmm. species to get to was always a green tree python. Um, and that's because I hadn't seen a Bowen's python yet. Um, <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as I did, I really knew that that was an animal that I wanted to gravitate to eventually. And then I got to mm-hmm. see one. The first one I ever saw in person was in Daytona, uh, early 2000s on um, Chad and Robin's table from Pro Exotics. And my instant reaction was, holy shit. There was a bow and python in person. Um, after I saw it in person, iridescence, 10 foot long, I was like, "That's that's got to be the pinnacle of my collection whenever I get it. Um, so right then, seeing the early 2000s, I knew that I had to start working with them. Uh, and I started working with Bowens about six years ago. Um, and I'm working with an adult pair at the moment. Nice. Very cool. I, I, I've seen your pair. They're, they're, they're very nice. So Thanks. Yeah, just gonna have to. I'm, I'm trying hard. I'm, I'm, I'm. I will get through this interview without wanting bowling, bowling pythons. I swear. So, yeah, right. You want them? Yeah. No, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. That's no, enough. you won't. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. So why don't we go to? I got Frederick. You're next on the list of uh, what brought you to Bullens and uh, how many you got working with right now. Yeah, first up, I want to say hello, and uh, thank you for inviting me to the Morelia Python Radio, even though we are even though we are Somalia right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And um, actually, the first time I saw, uh, I think it was the release of the, the Richard Ross uh, book, The Reproductive Husbandry of Python and Boas. I saw the picture of a Boas. I think it was about it was over 20 years ago, and uh, and uh, me and my friend just uh, we were talking to each other and, and told uh, told us that one day we will get get a bowl in our collection, and uh, and it went a couple of more years, and then in uh, 2007 I ordered a pair and uh, I got them in uh, in March 2007. So uh, I've been working with them since then, and uh, uh, and in 2013 it was the first time I reproduced um, a clutch of bowlands, and uh, then I acquired another pair. 
from um, from the same uh, clutch uh, that I bought my first pair from. So um, okay. yeah, that's about it. <laughs> and cool. uh, right right now I have uh, about 19 Bolands in my collection. Whoa! Nineteen? <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah, but, but that includes the fourteen babies from this year. Okay. Wow! Jeez. That's awesome. That's, that's, yeah, that's awesome. All Did right. you ever think so, that you would be able to say that you had fourteen babies that you're holding back? Or I mean, is that how awesome? Yeah, that you produce. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I have fourteen Bolands yeah. that I produce. No big deal. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It would, be ni- it would be nice to keep all of them, but uh, they grow so too large. <laughs> yeah, that that would be a lot of space. Oh. Yeah. Oh, very good. All right. <clears throat> all right. Keith, uh, what do you? Uh, what brought you to Bullens, and uh, how many do you got kicking around? Um. Well, I actually started with Bullens back in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, Back then, when we were keeping reptiles, everybody wanted to have a pair of this and a pair of that. There was no more, so there was no different color mm-hmm. changes or anything like that. So I, I got the Hudaks. They used to be up in Rochester, New York, and they had an importation from uh, Indonesia. And, and I went towards blood pythons, but I had gotten the Bolins in back then, but th- then they were coming in larger animals, and uh, they came in mm-hmm. usually with m- mouths being swollen, um, oh. very dehydrated, um, and just in really bad shape. And, you know, they were quite expensive back then. They were six to $10,000 a piece back then. So I gave a shot with one animal, and um <clears throat> didn't fare so well, and I then went into blood pythons, which became my focus for many, many years. But I always knew one day I would go back, and again, I think of them as the pinnacle uh, species of python to keep in captivity. So as my blood uh, and short tails kind of got the best of me, and and I made a decision about three years ago to get um, out of them and back down and start slowing down in life, and I knew I wanted to take on the challenge again of the bullenite. And I sold a collection of all my bloods and short tails and used the money to to purchase uh, three pairs. So I have six animals. And I'm, wow. my oldest animal is from 2009. And um, I don't really know the documented age of the other animals. but So I have an adult pair that is from 2009, 2010. That's my focus uh, this year for breeding. Um, I have a younger pair that I may put together based on what Aries uh, Ari is uh, found in the wild with a gravid female on a clutch of eggs, so I may try the younger mm-hmm. pair I have also. But I would like to point out that for people that don't really understand the accomplishment that Frederick has made in Bull and I, um, I always use the, the analogy of more pe- more people have walked on the moon than have successfully bred Bull and I. And <laughs> Frederick has done it three years in a row. It's quite an accomplishment. It's it's our Super Bowl. It's our World Series. It's everything right there as a python breeder to see that man pull that off three years in a row. So my hats off and kudos to Frederick for sure for accomplishing that. 
That is a very good analogy, actually. It's something you didn't think about. It's like, holy crap, he's right. So, I mean, you know, awesome. you know, more more people like you know, a lot of very dedicated people have kept them and and not been able to breed them and either given up or just resolved them to being pets in their collection and and never yeah. produced them, you know. So, the challenge is what has brought me back, aside from the sheer beauty. But now that I've slowed down and cut way back on my collection, um, and Bo and I are my focus. I figured what better animal to to try to tra- uh, crack the code on. Nice. That's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so <clears throat> me and Owen, as we said, both do not have Bolin's pythons. Yet. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, crap. I'm, I'm really surprised, Owen, that you don't have them yet. I mean, I don't know. I kind of thought that I would have them before you, but um, – mm. I don't know. I guess we're in an arms race to see who uh, wins, who holds out the longest. But uh, I, yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> so, the question that I'm going to start with Ari with is, um, um, so where do you see the species, both in captivity and in the wild, um, which your experience with this question specifically with the wild? Um, is you know is priceless. Uh, where do you see the species in ten years from now? Uh, well, it's a great question. Uh, first, I want to kind of add to with uh, what Pete said also about um, commending Frederick on his uh, incredible accomplishment. Not only was it just the fact, uh, I mean, just it, it's stupendous that he was able to replicate this several times, but it it, it also kind of instilled a lot of hope in people that, you know, there are animals that we, you know, that even though they fare so terrible in captivity at certain points, we still can kind of triumph over that and really figure out, it's almost like going back to the basics. Uh, And I talk to people about how we're so um, preoccupied with all the bells and the whistles of every sort of scenario in life that going back to the simplest um, uh, sense uh, in being uh, observation uh, holds the key in, in so many aspects. And I really, you know, it's it's awesome first off to be on this panel with all of you guys on there. I mean, talking positively about something that we're all so passionate about. So, you know, thank you also for having me on it. It's great. So now we're going to go back to the uh, question after uh, everybody done, is done tearing up after my uh, heartbroken <laughs> comment. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question because um, in captivity, I, I want to say that I, I think um, just because of with what um, Frederick's been able to do and the attention that it's gotten uh, and, and the hope that it's given people that, that it's like, okay, we can keep these animals now. We, we know what we're doing. Um, or to a point now where some people know more than others what they're doing and they're allowing people to know what to do, um, in turn allows us to be able to keep them keep them alive and maintain them successfully. So with that being said, I, I would assume that these animals would continue to um, flourish in captivity um, and find their ways into people that are, um, you know, able to continue, you know, continue what Frederick started. Um, in the wild, um, it's a different aspect, obviously, because we're, we're not in control. Um, and everything, in a sense, is, you know, dependent on us, how we are going to change the environment and whatnot, and, you know, what's going to be done with the animals. But 
just from what I've seen in the number of years I've been going there and um, just from this last trip uh, a couple months ago, um, the environment's dramatically changed. There's still places, obviously, that are so remote, you know, that you can't access, and I would hope and um, want to believe that there's populations of, of these snakes that are out there that we just haven't been able to access or haven't been able to see or whatnot, and that's my ultimate hope. But some of the areas that um, I've been taken to um, have just been decimated because of, you know, habitat loss in development with just, impro- you know, the just like, you know, the Western ways taking over and building and all that stuff, which is expected to happen. So I don't know. Um, I would like to say that they'll be around forever, which would be great. And, and ultimately, I, I would suggest they they would be. But we ultimately don't know because we don't know what a population is and, uh, and how far their range actually extends or, or um, where it ends. I mean, we assume that they, you know, inhabit this and we assume that they prefer this, but we, we don't really know and um that's where I'm, I'm hoping to come in with with all the work and the time that i'm spending over there just to kind of give us a better idea so um i i hope that answers the question <laughs> um it's kind of uh it's kind of up in the air um i i would hope uh, on a captive point that we continue the success that that's been started and um we're able to um uh bring in some uh animals that uh, aren't represented currently so we can have a uh, new bloodline into what's currently here. So we just don't get to the point where we're just breeding, 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 breeding the same, you know, clutch mates back and forth, um, or if it even affects that. Um, so, uh, you know, time will tell. And uh, I, I think we're at a really positive point in the, you know, fork in the road rather. Um, and I think we can go either way. And, and it looks like a lot of it is turning towards the positive end. So, uh, I mean, I hope that hope that answers it, or at least starts some better answers from somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that's good. When I get through, I do have a follow-up question that I'm going to ask you, but that I think only you can answer. But uh, well, let's oh, go great. through and see what uh, what Casper has yeah. to say. How about okay. you, Casper? What do you think? Well, Ten years. Where do you see Boland's pythons? I pretty much said it all. So uh, we could just skip to the next question, but. <laughs> Um, All right. No, really, um, I believe, of course, they are still a a niche animal because of the price, of course, but also because of all the the negative um, rumors that have been around for years with Bowen and I. And I think it's very important uh, for the future keepers just to, you know, make a a positive... uh, I want to call it a positive, a positive uh, bubble around the bowl and I because people need to understand that it's actually a super easy snake to keep, and uh, that's the first uh, you know way in the process to actually keep them is to learn that this snakes this, these snakes will not die in your hands a few weeks after you get them. They're super hardy creatures and will do just fine. Breeding is another whole other chapter, but uh, Frederick is doing that so well. So uh, if we continue this route, I think more people will keep them, and eventually we will have more people like Frederick um, breeding some uh, bolognese in the future, hopefully. <laughs> so uh, I think it. I think in captivity, it's it's a very positive future, um, and uh, as Ari said, uh, Frederick. Uh, made some hope in people. <laughs> so, uh, 
very, the very great good. hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, he, he was the chosen one, so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, let's hear what Chad has to say about it. What do you think, Chad? Um, I'll be honest with you, man. I I am glad that they are uh, just hitting on kind of what Casper said about the price. I'm glad they're expensive. I'll be honest with you. Um, because to spend that kind of money on the snake that you don't have very strong probabilities of breeding means right. that you're truly passionate about what you're buying. Um, yeah. So I really do. I really do appreciate the, the high price on um, even as we become more successful. Um, and we take notes from Frederick on what he's doing. Um, I hope that the price kind of stays there because of the passion it takes to buy them. You know, you don't want this to turn into another, and it never will, but another situation, you know, like we're in with the uh, the ball pythons and stuff. So I definitely respect and appreciate the price aspect. Um, I do think in the next 10 years they will be more popular just because hopefully some of the mysteries of breeding them will be uh, further unlocked, so to speak. Um, give us some more success, get more captive animals available to the public, show the uh, the general public that, that wants to get these guys um, that they're not as hard as they've, they've been thus far, unlock some mysteries. Um, honestly, though, I mean, it's just one of those snakes. I, I believe it's really going to grow with popularity uh, as more people have them, more people are successful with them, uh, more images and stories and, and books are, hurry up, um, are published. Things like that. So, yeah, right. uh, I mean, I really see them just growing in in every aspect. So, yeah, I would think that the uh, the only negative with the price would be the fact that, you know, I think maybe will people try to chase that. Um, But the good thing is, is that they're not that they're not easy to breed. So, you know, very true. Very true. And, And. and that's that might be one of the more discouraging things about them, but right. what I mean I, honestly, what more um, could you ask for in a species of python than a Bowens? I mean, everything about them is is great. They're beautiful. They're not very big. Um, I mean, they're just they're the king of pythons in my opinion. So other than the right. breeding, and it's not uh, other than the breeding that we don't know. It's not um, it's not anything that's that should keep people from buying them. I mean, it's just just one of those species that it's creme de la creme, and I hope that they stay the way they are, Um, but just with more popularity. But in over 10 years, as as fast as herpetoculture is growing, I don't see them not being on everybody's want or wish list. Right. Well said, well said. All right. Let's ask the the now-dubbed king, Frederick. What say you? Uh, where do you see bones in ten years from now? Um, well, it's hard to tell, but I think they will be more common, and um, there will be more people reproducing them. And um, I would be really surprised if there's uh, not not uh, if there's no no more than if there's not any more that people that are breeding them this year, because uh, I think I've shared my information for. For, for a lot of people, and and I still don't want. I still wonder why, why they are not more readily uh, bred o- over the world, and um, uh, and I, I think I think the future looks good for captive breedings, and uh, 
I think they will be more readily available, captive-born babies. But uh, I think the, the prices will stay high for a, for a long time, and uh, the the demand is very high, and uh, there's a lot of, lot of people that are interested in them. So, so I think the the future is good. Right. Um, but but uh, about the wild population, I <laughs> I think uh, Ori has the best answers to that, to that question. Right. Uh, so uh, Do you, this is sort of a. I'm, I'm going to ask you because just like Ari only has the uh, the wild aspect of it, you have the captive breeding aspect of it. The, the more and more that that these are bred in captivity, do you think that they're going to follow suit as other pythons have and become easier to breed in captivity? Um, I think I think not everyone is going to to breed them because. Um, they need uh, so big uh, temperature variations, so you, you can't keep them in, in your snake room along along with other species. And, right. Uh, I, I think uh, I think not everyone has the possibility to to maintain them in the same way that I do. And uh, right. Uh, so I think uh, you, you really have to go go for it and uh, and really work. Uh, just for the species, so so you have to keep them in, in a single room, or uh, <laughs> or like I I did sell all of the other species and just focus on the bolans uh, because I don't have that much space, so I can keep. Uh, I only have one hobby room, so right. Um, yeah. Hey Eric. Yeah. Uh, hey, I I don't want to cut off Frederick at all, but I wanted to to add into what he was saying. Hey Frederick, how's it going? Yeah. Hi. <laughs> um, okay. I think I think one of the I think one of the things um that Frederick's really kind of uh, not I hate to use rediscovered but kind of like readdressed to the hobby in itself as well as a lot of the newer keepers that are coming up to it is that we're that we need to get back to the basics. And in terms of observing animals for what they are and what they do, and, and I think that in itself has been monumental in Frederick's success because he's observed the animals for what they're doing and what they're requiring, uh, as opposed to what the um, what we thought we needed to uh, provide for them. Frederick's found out that it's. It's it's a lot of it, most of it has to do with the behavior of the animal itself. So you have to really be patient with the animal and be able to observe it for what it is, as opposed to um, what you're trying to get out of it. If if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Does that work? Okay. You can, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. can mute me now. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see what uh, let's see what Keith has to say about uh, where he sees. Uh, the bones in 10 years. Keith, what, what say you? Well, um, if if you were around when the, the blood pythons were just starting to take off and the short tails, they were a species also that were very difficult to maintain in captivity, um, and a lot of people weren't even having success maintaining them. And then um, breeding them was, you know, people were just hoping to keep them alive and get them feeding. And then uh, breeding was way down the road in everybody's book. And and we can see nowadays that's become very commonplace. 
Um, but the difference between uh, species like the blood and short tails and bolani, um, as Casper touched on, is they're not an animal that you can really keep in a room um, with other python species and expect to uh, achieve the goals that you need to achieve with them in order to have success. Where blood pythons, um, you can tend to do that with, and and you can be a lot more successful with them. So, as far as captivity goes, um, I think once once people see that a few people are breeding them, uh, more people will want them in their collection to have. But as far as uh, the number of successful breeders. Um, I could see that being limited to the very dedicated that are willing to give them their room. And I'm sure we'll all touch on what we do husbandry rise uh, later in the discussion, but it's very different from 90% of the pythons that I've ever kept. And um, I've kept many and, and these guys definitely have a room of their own um, in my collection. And, uh, you know, like I say, I'm focusing solely on them and the other animals I have are more, um, on the back burner, and if they breed for me, great, and if they don't, they don't, but the concentration is on these guys, and I think that's really what it takes, and as Ari and um, Frederick um, can attest to, you do have to be really in tune with your animals and what they're doing and, and what they're showing you in order to capitalize on those things um, with this species, so I don't know how many people are going to be that dedicated to do it, but people that are looking for a quick buck um, it's not going to be there, so I'm hoping that <laughs> prices do stay high and do right. stay where it's for the more dedicated keepers. Right, which is good. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So oh, and what do you think? The, I think of a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's, again, with the whole I don't have these, but could they become something that's, uh, a high-level species. They already are a high-level species, in my opinion. They're like Cadillac, and I'm still running around with my Ford Fiesta. So it's like <laughs> it's there. But I remember at one point, diamond pythons were there, and they were high, and they were you had to do all these special things. And you were worried about killing them every time you touched them, and all the other fun stuff. And we figured those things out. So uh, I do believe that we're going to see an uptick with the successful breedings, especially when the babies that Frederick has already produced are old enough to breed. Um, and that's all good with me. But also I think the fact that you can't keep these guys properly like you keep everybody else is going to kind of limit who wants to get into them. So they will stay as a higher, you know, echelon, which I'm totally okay with. Um, just not sure if I'm going to do it, but yeah, um, that's what I think. How about you? I think, I think, I think, I think um, it was already brought up, but I, when I think of Bolin's pythons, I think of um, you know I, I'd have to agree with Ari and um, Frederick is that you know <clears throat> it's one of those things where you are. Uh, uh, in touch again with your reptiles, you know, you're not really focused on, um, you know, uh, Facebook and, you know, the drama and this and that and all this other stuff. You're really just trying to figure out the species. I mean, like when I think of, I think I heard this analogy before, like when you think of like ball pythons, you think of like a fancy car and the paint job is nice. But when I think yeah. of bowling, 
It's like you're looking inside and how does the engine work? And to me, that's what's <laughs> that's what's so fascinating about, you know, I mean, that's kind of what drew me to Morelia in the be- to begin with. And yeah. I think until I sort of, you know, wet wet my toes with the easier, you know, even though they're not in Morelia, <laughs> but they'll always be in Morelia to me. But anyway, um, even though, you know, I, I would just sort of, you know, become successful with the easier species in that genus and then sort of move my way up until, you know, being able to one day uh, work with them and keep them uh, correctly. And You don't just want to run out and buy like 12? And I mean, like <laughs> no. jump right in? <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. I'd Smart. I'd have I'd I'd be happy just having having one honestly, um, yeah. but I guess my mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, I guess my follow up to uh, to <laughs> my apology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, Apparently, Bullins are to are Bentleys, not Cadillacs. I'm yeah, what's sorry. wrong with you, man? I don't know. It's a lot of things. Sorry. My question would be is like as far as the wild goes, um are, are we looking at different localities of these guys or are they are they pretty much coming from the same place as far as uh you know what we're seeing in uh captivity? Well, from what I've from what I've been able to determine and um and see firsthand the, the animals that are are, are, that are in private, well, I mean, the animals are in captivity currently, um, all the young animals and, and whatnot, or, or the a little bit older animals. None of the, obviously, the original, like, late 70s, early uh, 80 adults that came in um, are, I don't think most, many of those are alive left, but uh, everything that we see now um, are originate, originating, rather, from uh, three uh, collection sites. Um, the collection sites are, are, are relatively close in proximity uh, I mean, it's still a, a distance, but it's not, you know, you know, hours and hours and hours away by any means. Um, and that goes uh, with some of the population study I'm doing, too, to find out if there is anything different. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think um, there's a there's a possibility. I know that's a really big debatable question in some of the Bolins community. Um, and uh, it, it's tough. Personally, if you were asking me as an individual in my belief, I'd say yes. Um, but I don't have any data to support that or back that statement up. It's just my, my gut feeling and just my observations. And, and if somebody were to say, well, what would make you suggest that? I would say, well, um, you know, I think visually uh, I've seen some differences. Um, I've passed some photos around through Casper and Frederick um, on some of the individual animals that, that I've come across or, or that have been collected. I've been able to see it. Uh, they look unique. Um and it could just be, like I've said, um, from individual animals themselves. But uh, I think it's a little bit more to it. Um, I've seen, you know, some of the the head scales are really, really pronounced, uh, really bulbous looking. And then some uh, animals from some areas are really kind of a more like elongated uh, snout or really big uh, uh, labial uh, pits or, uh, or, or or whatnot. And uh, so I, I think yes, but uh, there's um, there needs to be a you know, another lifetime or two lifetimes to be able to prove that, in my point, uh, just with right. how uh, vast and how uh, difficult it is to access out in the wild. Uh, I, I, you know, by no means am I an expert on it. Uh, I've just been lucky enough to be traveling there for, you know, 2006 and been able to see this stuff. So uh, these are just observations that I've made. So 
Um, and I, there's been some, you know, spe- specific specimens I've come across too in private collections that are already in captivity that look different from things that I've come across as well. So I, I would say, yeah. Uh, but like I said in the beginning, um, I, I don't have anything to back it up, uh, to really say yes. So right now it's just a personal opinion of mine. Um, okay. but, uh, everything that we see currently, um, is all, um, uh, coming from three, uh, three, maybe four, uh, typically three collection sites. Um, okay. that I know of. And one of one of those sites I, I visit regularly and it's a it's a constant um supply of animals and some a really healthy population of of uh, nesting females every or uh, twice a year actually that are producing. So Oh, okay. Um and my follow up question. Oh, that wasn't just rambling of you know, just rambling <laughs> jargon. No, no, right no. There, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> My follow-up question would be this, um, and I think only your experience could uh, could touch on this, is, and um, and I think maybe this will we'll get into this a little later as well once we talk on maybe captive care. But um, I was talking to Rob Stone today, and we were talking about Halma hair scrub pythons, and he was nice. showing me like uh, data and stuff that he he's been looking up and researching and such. And it's crazy that a lot of people thought about how much it rained um, there. And when you look at the, when he actually looked at the data, that was the average rainfall. It really didn't rain that much. There was also a thought yeah. about as far as um, that you have to keep them hotter and warmer. And uh, again, the the temperature data doesn't back that up. So my question yeah. would be. Do you think that people really don't understand because you've actually been in their habitat? Do you, do yeah. they not understand really what it's like to be there? I agree. I mean, yeah, I, I really agree. Um, I've had I've had people, and it, it's funny, and, and I and I don't mean this in any kind of a negative way or make fun of anybody because I'm not like that. But I have people that have that have never touched a bold python that are like, you know, okay, I've got you know all this money, I want to I want to buy these these snakes, and I'm going to be I'm going to be one of the few people that have produced it. And, I, and when I first started working with these animals, like in the late 90s, I, I remember every time it'd be like I, I'd hear or meet a new person, I'm going to be the first one. And this is way, I mean, this is before Frederick, you know, was, was cranking these, these things out. And he's probably getting tired of seeing eggs. So I know how it is. I'm getting tired of seeing him in the wild. So there you go. <laughs> but, um, um, but uh, it, and they, you know, get these animals and they're like, I'm going to build this gigantic facility and I'm going to create their habitat in this facility and I'm going to breathe them. And I remember thinking to myself after I've seen this place and climbed to the habitat and dealt with it, I'm like, there's no way in hell that you could be able to replicate it. It's just so intricate. It's so unique. I don't know how you'd be able to do it. I'm sure you could maybe get one aspect of it to be correct, but I don't think it would work out aside from being just a pretty diorama, uh, if that makes sense. Um, And uh, I, I just don't think it's, it's, it's possible and uh to do that and, and to answer more of the question i you know captive animals tend so well or these these young animals that we have access to within the last 10 10 12 years fare so well like what Casper was saying they're they're a rock solid animal i mean uh, of course you're going to get your flukes you know every once in a while you know a, a situation of an animal that you know comes in with something and it and it, and it dies unfortunately or you have some some ailment that you've got to deal with as with any kind of a captive, but, but as far sure. as maintaining these young animals, they, they do flawlessly. I mean, it, as long as you maintain them in, in a typical Python manner, like with, you know, these, uh, other Morelius, uh, they do fantastic. And, uh, but they, it's not like we're trying to acclimate, 
these imported animals, uh, like Keith touched on early um, with these horror stories that that basically developed this, you know, this image of these snakes that were unattain- uh, unobtainable. And if you were able to to breach that wall, you'd get this animal that would never live, and you'd get these animals that would come in and they'd just be beaten up, and they'd be so acclimated to this this incredible environment that you try to bring them into the setting and you try to do this and that, and they just die. Um, so I, I think uh, I would have to totally agree with you by saying that, you know, I don't think uh, people understand, you know, where these animals live and what they go through. And and even their behavior in the wild is so compared to other snakes, in my opinion. And it's very interesting. I, I'm wanting to take Frederick with me so bad because he's, <laughs> you know, been able to witness the behavior, keys and quarks from his animals to be able to, you know, uh, get these animals to reproduce for him. I want him to see animals in the wild and see if they mimic that same behavior or if it's something completely different. So it's, it's, uh, it's exciting. So, um, yeah, I'm done. There you go. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, real quick, we're going to, uh, click on, uh, Evan Waxler. He's joining the conversation. Uh, his phone died and now he's back on Evan. What say you? Hey guys, how you doing? Pretty good. And that's Evan Wexler. W-E-X-L-E-R. Wexler. Got it. So, basically, I mean, I'd like to first say, you know, the group of guys on here are probably one of, uh, you know, I hold them in high regard. Um, They're all great guys. Casper, good guy. Chad's awesome. Ari's become a good friend. Um, Presently, I have uh, uh, 3.3 Bowens. I should have a lot more. Um, other, <laughs> unlike some of the other people that are listening in or talking, I'm more of a collector than a breeder. Uh, okay. I primarily, um, you know, I want things that other people don't have. Um, and I heard you guys mention the Bentley of uh, snakes, and I have a picture of mine uh, on the front hood of my Bentley. Um, <laughs> I, presently, I presently have... Uh, a 2011 and a 2012 uh, pair that'll probably that'll be the first ones uh, that I'll try to breed. Um, but I think as far as uh, you know, newcomers to the Bolins, uh, and yes, they are easy once you uh, get them started. Uh, I've probably, which you know, without mentioning or hurting anybody, you know, where most of the Bolins in the United States are coming from, I I bought probably 14 of them. Uh, in the last two years, my first group in uh, 2014 that I bought from them, um, I've had dehydrating problems, and I thought it was over misting or watering them, um, and I don't think that that was the issue. They just dehydrate as babies. Uh, they really, really need uh, a lot of water, you know, and it's a, a dry atmosphere and not a uh, a wet atmosphere. Um, the second group that came in in 2015 uh, for my birthday, I bought myself seven baby bowlings. Uh Out of the seven, three survived, and they're named Ari, Casper, and Frederick. And those were the <laughs> only three out of the seven that survived. Yeah, uh, nice. The group had Pseudomonas, so I do recommend, you know, anybody that buys, uh, you know, a Bolins, they're, again, expensive with a Bentley of Python. Uh, you get them checked out right away. Don't wait necessarily for a lot of symptoms. Um, once you get them started, 
They're super easy. They're super interactive of any snake that I have in my in my collection. As soon as you come in the room, everybody's looking out of their hide spots. Um, and they're not looking at you more as like a retic where, okay, I'll open that cage and maybe I'm going to get bit. None of my bowlings are really like that. My little guys are a little on the aggressive side, but uh, overall, um, they're an inquisitive snake. Um, I feel that my larger ones actually recognize me, and I don't know if it's my, my heat source, um, but I can stand in the room, and uh, somebody smaller or larger, you know, can stand in front, of, in front of the cage with me, and the snake will most normally come over my way. Um, they're just very smart, uh, you know, they're, they're the top of the line, you know, and uh, having the internet and having stuff like this, uh, in the past I did um, uh, basins, emerald basins, I had a collection of 15 or 20 of them, um, but I was on my own, you know, this with the internet and the group of people and uh, able to exchange uh, information and just hanging out and talking to good guys and, you know, like I say, Ari, Casper, Frederick, I talk to all of them on uh, Facebook quite often. And it's made the hobby of owning a bowl and just so much more fun. Very cool. All right. I like it. Yeah, Dave, you have to unmute Owen for him to talk. (laughs) Yeah. Staring Uh, at me. You're talking to yourself and, uh, yeah. I have been, and I thrive for intelligent conversation. Anyway, um, what we'll do now is we're going to move on to the um, kind of like the elephant in the room when it comes to bullens, um, and that's the infertility when it comes to eggs. It's probably one of the issues that a lot of people do bring up to you guys about bullens and about breeding bullens. I just want to kind of get your take on it. We'll start with uh, Ari. Um, what do you think's going on with the infertility as well as captive breeding bullens? Uh, well, uh, to be honest with you, I don't have a lot of experience with this uh, answering okay. this question. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I can base it from um, things I've seen in the wild and Please. clutch sizes. Uh, I've seen anywhere from, I think the smallest clutch I saw was 10 and the biggest clutch I saw was 14. Um, and the small clutch was from a young, uh, a small young female. This mm-hmm. is probably her her first time reproducing. I think we we spoke about that before uh, on, on one of the interviews. Uh, and then the the fourteen uh, that I saw was from a, a really big uh, eight to nine foot female that had obviously uh, this wasn't her first rodeo. So, um, right. but as far as uh, fertility infertility, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if you compare captivity to to wild animals, it's considerably different you've got so many things to consider you know obviously you've got an animal that has everything that it needs and it's been using it for you know eons <laughs> realistically in the wild right. and then we're trying right. to provide something um to replicate uh, enough for us to be able to reproduce so um some in some areas we're not going to be able to you know hit on that all the time so i don't know i mean uh, like i said i don't have a lot of experience with that kind of question i mean i feel like frederick would be the um, the person, uh, the man, to be able to uh, to, yeah. to talk more on that. So, but, it, but it's kind of interesting from your standpoint of you said like the biggest clutch you've seen is like sixteen, fourteen eggs. Uh, fourteen, yeah, fourteen. And that's like, and that's like I have carpet pythons that are not even the same length of a bowling <laughs> or the size, and it's like thirty two, forty eggs. 
So you're yeah. telling me the big clutches are like in the teens, and that's interesting enough. Is I would expect yeah. more out of them, really. And you know, and that, and uh, I've seen. I, I want to say I've seen about. I want to say I've seen at least five clutches of eggs in the wild now, and mm-hmm. they were right around that range. I mean, that was the the extreme that that size fourteen. It's not to say that you know there's not that one out there that's spitting out twenty eggs, but you know, right? Um, who knows? Um, that's the thing. Um, but um, as time goes on, and you know, um, I, I certainly agree with Frederick about his comment about um, the uh, within. We'll, we'll probably see some more. Uh, uh, captive success this year and next year um, with people that have them too. And, uh, you know, may- maybe we'll start to see some kind of variation in uh, fertility and infertility if we haven't seen it already with uh, prior um, people that have been reproducing or, or haven't or not. And uh, maybe we'll see different clutch sizes too. But um, uh, it, it's definitely interesting. I don't know if we're even at that point to even consider it. Um, it mm-hmm. it's, it's something abnormal or normal. Um, but uh, it, it's just interesting in general. Good. All right. Um, let's move on to uh, Casper. What do you think's going on with the infertility in Bolins? Um, first off, I think uh, I'll have to say that um, I have not tried to bring Bolina yet. This will be my right. first season, and my my oldest animals are from uh, 2011. So I'm pretty new to this, and I still think of myself as a as a newbie in the bowling eye world learning from all the great guys around me here so uh but i'll give my uh my five cents on what i think that people should do uh first okay. off i think most captive bowling eye are way too fat um which works in a negative way when they're trying to develop follicles um mm-hmm. and i've spoken with a lot of people keeping bowling eye you do they they maybe have a pair or a tree or something that is two or three years old. And they're like bragging about them being 10 feet long, weighing 15 pounds, which is insane <laughs> from a, a two to three-year-old bone in my opinion. And okay. uh, yes, they are like a Labrador retriever. They will eat everything all day long, but that's not the way to go in my opinion. Um mm-hmm. Next thing I would say is probably keeping them way too hot. And that's even okay. for the cooling period. Um, a lot of people get their bolnite to develop follicles, but you rarely see slugs. You always hear about people having their bolnite reabsorb their uh, follicles. So mm-hmm. I think that the cooling period if you should even have it in a period, it should be way longer than maybe just three months. Um, because when you start heating them up again, they will, you might burn the follicles of the female or, you know, make her reabsorb. So in my opinion, I would keep them cooler for a way long period. But uh, I don't know if, if, if that's the way to go yet, but I think I'll, I'm going to try and do it. Um, of course, I'm going to try and do the same as Frederick does, but mm. he's still a bit up north for me, so he lives in the mountains, gets some nice cool air in. I don't know if it has anything to do with breeding bull and I or, <laughs> or what, but yeah. 
I'm just um, going to try uh, with uh, with what I've learned from Frederick and uh, talk with all these great guys and hear their opinions and uh, hopefully one day I'll see a bowler and a clutch. But uh, well, good luck with that. And are are you kind of like nervous and excited that you're taking a whack at this? Are you like nervous that you're going to be trying to breed them this year, Casper? Um, not really nervous about it. Um, if they don't go, they don't go, and I'll just wait until next year. I'm I'm not in a hurry. Um, cool. I actually just keep them for uh, because I think they're so awesome. Every time I go into my bowl and I room, I I can't stop smiling. So <laughs> it, it makes me really happy. Uh, <laughs> and awesome. I'm very stressed at the moment because of several things. So to be honest. It's not my first priority this year um, to uh, to try and breed them, but I will see uh, how the uh, how the animals react to each other and take some notes and and if I see uh, a huge uh, follicle growth, of course I'll keep uh, putting the male into the female, but um, I'll just take it uh, nice and slow. <laughs> Very cool. Well, again, good luck with that. We hope you get some good luck there. Um, Okay, so let's uh, see what Chad has to say. Chad, what do you think is going on with Bowens and infertility? Uh, um, obviously, I've not been successful yet either. Um, I did yeah. try last year. Uh, they didn't They didn't produce for me. Um, I'm going to try to do it again this year. Um, and one of the things that I adjusted uh, to, to try this year is one of the things that Casper hit on, and that was temperature. Um, okay. I, don't, I, I don't think I keep them too warm. I just don't think I got them cold enough to go. Um, I keep them cooler than everything else uh, that I that I work with, with the exception of the uh, Malukan scrubs. I keep the Malukans the same way. Um, I keep them relatively cool. I mean, they do have a hot spot uh, in the mm-hmm. cage of about 80, um, but they're ambient on one side of the temperature stays, you know, about 68. So I try to keep them relatively cool, uh, very very high humidity in there. Um, so I So I do try to keep them cool, but I think that might be, a big problem is that we don't keep them cool enough. Uh, so I think Casper definitely hit the nail on the head. And the the other thing that that I have to agree with is mm-hmm. is overweight snakes in captivity are not good. I mean, we learned our lesson many many times over uh, with blackhead pythons. I mean, if they have any fatty tissue around the cloaca, the female doesn't breed, uh, or if she does, it's it's an infertile, slugged out clutch. Um, we've learned our lesson with with that time and time again. And I think because they are such a um, – they have the potential, I should say, to be such a heavy-bodied snake. Um, we mm-hmm. overfeed. We might not um, We might not diversify the meals as much uh, as maybe we need to with, you know, rodents being so plentiful and, and other meals maybe not, chicks, quail, things like that, um, I think could definitely help with keeping them slender but still giving them a meal. Um, but but too much too much weight on the snake is not good, and that could be a big issue um, with a lot of people keeping these or trying to breed these. Um, I keep mine fairly slender. I mean, I feed my guys every ten days. Normally, I feed you know mostly everything else I have uh, every seven days. Um, mm-hmm. Smaller meals. These guys don't get anything ever bigger than a medium rat. I mean, I just don't give them that. Not offer them quail, chicks. Um, sometimes they get small rats. Sometimes they get medium rats. Um, right. I think honestly, the the colder that we can get these guys without putting them into a um, a situation where we have to worry about respiratory issues uh, mm-hmm. and small um, regular meals, 
I think would be the key, maybe to see further, um, more fertile clutches than infertile uh, or infertility right. in general with these guys. But, again, I have not been successful yet, so I can't weigh on too heavy of what I've seen in a, uh, a clutch personally. Um, Frederick will be able to enlighten us more on that, but that would be my in my opinion of where we're at now. Awesome. Now, I know, Chad, you have a pretty diverse collection, and you mentioned yes. your Malukans, so you're pretty much kind of keeping them the Malukans would probably be the closest to another animal that would be kind of kept the same way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I keep them. I keep them exact same. They're they're in the same type setup. Uh, I use the same. I mean, I like they're literally the same. Same size cage, the same size water bowls. Uh, I even use the same UV bulb, length bulbs, everything. They're like they they are kept the same. Hot spot about eighty, and getting into the mid sixties of the uh, of one spot of their cage, and and I'm going to try to cool them down the exact same way this year. Um, as I do the bowling. So, cool. Thanks. And I guess, um, uh, Frederick, why? Because you've actually had a lot of success with the bowling. So, why do you think uh, infertility is an issue, and has it been an issue with your clutches? Yeah, I I would come up to the conclusion that um, well, when it first when my first clutch in 2013, I got um, mm-hmm. of ten eggs, I got. Uh, four, I think it was five fertile eggs, and I hatched out four, four of them. Okay. Uh, and um, everyone was <laughs> contacting me through Facebook and uh, through Expos and everything, and was just asking me, but how, how do we breed uh, our bowlands? How do we get eggs? <laughs> and I was just like, but uh, I, I was just wondering about the infertility problem because. Yeah. When you read when you read around the internet and uh, you can you can read uh, other people's experience from the few times that, that they have had eggs from a bowl and there's a lot of issues and problems and infertility and uh, low hatch rate and everything. So um, and um, and uh, because I only have four adult bowlands and that's. Mm-hmm. That's that's the snakes I'm I'm focusing on. So I have have them in exact exact same same way. I have them uh, one by one in each enclosures that are exactly the same. They have the same mm-hmm. type of hot hot spot and uh, hiding place and everything. And uh, and uh, as I only have have these four snakes, uh, adult snakes, uh, I I, I watch them a lot and I I, mm-hmm. I just focus on them and. Uh, and, and see how they behave, and they they actually do the exact same thing at the same time, almost uh, almost every time. So if one is basking, all four is basking, and if one is hiding, all four is hiding, even though they are not in the same enclosure and know what the other ones do. So I I uh, I watch them a lot and uh, see how they behave and uh, and uh, what type of pattern they are uh, going for and uh, and uh, what what I I saw with the first female when she got the first clutch uh, she was basking a lot when she was mm-hmm. starting to develop follicles and um, I know that uh, it's not not good to get the follicles overheated but uh, but I thought, well, she wants to bask, and she wants to bask more frequently than than she did before. And uh, she was still she was still uh, producing follicles, and they were growing. And she looks very big, almost 
like she was full of egg already, but it was just the follicles growing. And mm-hmm. um, uh, but she she kept on basking, and uh, and I thought that was okay. But but then uh, when she got the eggs, they was not not that good that I was hoping for. And, right. And yeah. And um, then the next year I got another female, and she actually didn't bask that much during the follicle stages as the other female, and uh, that actually she she had a better re- result with uh, seven fertile eggs out of ten and um, and and this year i got uh, the opportunity to get both females with eggs so uh, i could see i could see how they how they behaved from each other because uh, the first female she 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 basked a lot again and the other female she she almost stayed away from the from the hot spot during the whole follicle uh, development process and um, she actually the, the outcome was that uh, the female that basked a lot she, she only produced two fertile eggs and uh, the other female produced uh, uh, 12 fertile eggs out of 13 so um, wow th- well, yeah so I think I think they cannot really regulate uh, because uh, regulated temperatures by themselves in captivity, because I think it's like they are programmed in the wild. If the sun mm-hmm. is up, they will, they will need to bask to survive because it's mm-hmm. so cold. Uh, and uh, they go out and bask and they go back, back to the hiding places to, where, where the heat is uh, constant. And uh, mm-hmm. then they need to go out and bask. So I think they're like, they're just like they're programmed to bask when it's offered. Mm-hmm. So uh, actually what, what I'm doing right now is uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, lowering the basking times and uh, I've been speaking to the other guys as well and uh, I think Keith is trying to, to, to keep uh, the, the, bas- the, the basking spot uh, a few, uh, few hours per day at different times. And, right. uh, we, are tr- we are trying to, to experiment with, uh, with the basking because before before this everyone was has been it's been a really big hype over uv lighting and it should be a hot hot spot and they like to bask and and yes they do but i don't think uh, i think they they cannot regulate it by themselves excuse me no no it's just like it's all like so they they like to bask so much that they're actually hindering the follicular development. I I I think so. I think uh, I'm on that that uh, that way to <laughs> to see because right. I could I could see the difference with these two females at the same time, mm-hmm. and uh, I got a lot better result with a with a female that didn't bask so much. And uh, yeah. I think it I think it's always also the males will bask as well, and uh, that's not good for the sperm production either. If they get too hot for a long period of time, yeah, that I yeah I can see that. That's huh. That's awesome. That's really interesting, and that's uh, and so you guys are just cutting down the time that they have access to a basking spot, and we're going to see if that improves the infertility. Well, that that's what I'm trying to do right now because I I don't have another conclusion. I don't have another. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to do. 
Uh, and uh, of course, and of course, what other other guys was uh, saying about obesity—that that's also something I, I don't I don't think it's good to overfeed them. Um, my snakes are are not heavy fed, and they are, they are slender snakes, and uh, I think that's the way they should be kept and, uh, and be. So very cool. Well, we'll see how this goes. If you get a better yield this year out of. Uh cutting back on their basking, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Very cool. All right, so um, uh, let's see, Keith, um, what do you think about the infertility, given what you know about Bowens and what you see from your guys? Well, I have to rely on, uh, since I haven't bred them either yet, I have to rely on my experience with all the other pythons that I've worked with over the years. And to me, two factors always come into play, temperature and feeding. So yes. I'm trying to figure out how to muffle these guys. And I've talked to Frederick about it and um, and posted a quick video of him hiking up to the Bolonite country. And that quick video told me so much um, about this species, believe it or not, because I'm like Frederick. I like to key in on details. And just that walk, changed my whole mindset on how I'm keeping my, my animals. And I've talked to Frederick and, and what I've done is um, I've actually limited my basking to a half an hour um, in the morning. Then it goes off for two hours. Then the basking comes on for a half an hour, goes off for two hours. And it cycles like that throughout the day. Okay. Um, so I use, I use a radiant heat panel. So um, I use a very mild UV uh, fluorescent bulb just to provide lighting in the cage. Um, but the heat panel cycles on and off throughout the day to give them a basking spot. Cause if, if you keep that basking spot at 90 degrees, typically those snakes were always under. And I agree with Frederick that the way they possibly regulate in captivity is way different than they do in, in the wild. And, um, I think we have to adjust our, our captive, um, environments to, to try to accommodate that. And, and the animals are designed to gather and store as much heat as they possibly can. You can tell by their full black um, color and, and design, maybe the iridescence of the animal and everything. It's all designed for that animal to take advantage of when that light and heat is available. Let's gather it as quickly as we can, store it for as long as we can. So right. I think basically we've been killing the snake with kindness. You know, we're, we're all in great. I think in general, I think in general, we in the United States keep our all our reptiles too warm. We have for a long time, and and it's very hard. I mean, I've walked into my. I don't recommend this, but I've walked into my room in winter, and it's been forty eight, forty nine degrees, and it's very hard to walk in that room and say. I have a python in this room, you know? Yeah. Right. So I don't think, I don't think very cold temperatures are really a necessity anymore. Um, from what mm. I'm seeing, I just basically think overall cooler temperatures day and night, not just nighttime, but day and night um, are going to be a factor. Now where I do disagree with everybody a little bit, and it's hard to disagree with a man who has uh, been successful is, is, mm-hmm. Um, okay. I don't disagree. I don't disagree with weight, but I can tell you when Paul Miles bred his animals, he was the first ever to truly breed them in captivity. I went to his place 
walked in and he kept his uh, bow and eye with uh, his um, Argentine bow as another species that likes a uh, long cooling period. And when I walked in there, I was blown away at the size of his female. I mean, to me, it looked like a Burmese python. And I'm like, oh, my God, I had no idea they got that big. Really? And, uh, that, yeah, and that was the first year and, and, you know, first time anybody was successful. So I always keep that in the back of my mind. Now, I'm not saying that the animals need to be heavy. I agree with everybody that the animals need to be slender. But um, I've, I've wrote about this um, in some of my posts that, most animals that have such a high metabolism um, generally need frequent caloric intake. Like I, I think of a hummingbird and a shrew that feed constantly. And these guys, I don't know yet in captivity, do they have such a high metabolism because we're keeping them too warm or if nature has designed these guys to, to break down the food quickly because uh, of the cooler temperatures. But I almost feel like to keep that machine running, you need frequent smaller meals possibly to keep the caloric it can keep the it can keep that engine running um, while maintaining a slender body weight. So it's a delicate balance, but that's something I'm also experimenting with with my animals. And um, I do believe that these guys are probably very key on as the food is prevalent is the time to reproduce. So you know, a fasting with a you know worked very well with blood pythons too. Is when and then you start hitting them hard with the, the meals when you want them to, to produce their clutch of eggs um, was a very good stimulus for the female. So those are two items that I'm keying in on um, with some feedback, obviously, from Frederick that I'm going in the right direction. Um, it is mm-hmm. definitely temperatures overall and, and feeding machines. Awesome. Um, I think uh, Ari had a uh, quick question about some of Paul's animals. Did you mention the... Uh, the big, big bull and I that uh, he had. Ari, are you, did Eric click you on? Yeah, yeah, I'm on here. Hey, Keith, how's it going? Hey, Eric, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. Yeah, so the the uh, the Palm Isles reproduction is like the classic um, one that everybody, I, I think, goes to. And do we, do we know where his animals were acquired from or? Um, yeah, well, if Tracy... They, yeah, Tracy Barker had to see the gravid female when these adults were coming in, and, and that's right. He came from he came from the gravid female. Okay. Yeah, and he he got he got a pair of animals from Tracy and uh, raised them up, and then uh, uh, you know back then you know we, we always we always said you got to feed them to breed them, and it was the, yeah it yeah was, exactly. Uh, you know, and and I think Paul had that mentality with his animals, and and I can tell you that his feet. I I have a picture that I've posted of me holding the male, uh, I would not hold his female because at the time it was just too much. <laughs> I, I was yeah. afraid I would actually faint and drop the animal on the floor. So I'm like, I'm not holding that female. I'll hold your male. But well, the female, the female is so large. Like I said, when I walked in, saw her behind that glass, I was like, my God, that looks like a small Burmese python. And, um, you know, it was, it was such a large animal. I've heard of several animals with that kind of a description. And my curious uh, or my thought um, behind it is um, the region possibly or where those uh, where that female came from that produced those eggs. Um, if there is any kind of variation in those, um, I hate to say locality specific, but um, being uh, larger animals because I, I know I hear so many reports and I'm going to co- totally get onto this. Uh, 
um, questionable debate about, you know, uh, the white face, the the yellow face, because I know a lot of keepers have their own opinion on it. And um, I've come across a lot of data, not just um, in the past, but uh, from the locals, like the hunters that are, are that are out there and see them. Um, and describe these really gigantic snakes, like these big, big Bolands pythons from uh, further areas um, east, like uh, below Oxabel and get uh, crossing over to P&G. Um, and unfortunately, we can't really trace it any further than just the reports and the speculations because it's so um, damn dangerous to get over there. And uh, being able to observe snakes or collecting snakes over there is is really, really regulated. Um, it's just a difficult scenario. So everything we've got to deal with is everything on the western side, which are these typical like streamlined body animals. So that's why I was curious as, as to far where that where that female came from. Um, mm-hmm. If we were able to determine if she in fact was uh, just a, a different um, uh, an animal from a different area that potentially was just genetically designed to be a larger snake in turn, um, or or in fact she was just you know feeding them to breeding them, you know what I mean? Um, That's cool. I If it's a different locality, it would be kind of awesome to see that kind of different body types between the two animals. It would be kind of cool to have the big mountain type or whatever the hell you want to call them, but that's awesome. So yeah, I, even, I don't I know if we totally have forgot. a – I don't really know. If, yeah, I don't know if we have a lot of data really to um, – suggest you know that there's uh, like types but um mm. definitely observations that would suggest you know that there's uh, uh you know observe you know observations that are saying that these animals look differently different physically uh and i think i've talked briefly about it on one of the interviews i did with you guys before a year or so ago about uh, uh and a lot of the um uh, the stories with the, the locals from some of these different tribes, uh, they describe the snake as either being yellow or they describe the snake as be either being white. And uh, there's, right. uh, there's two distinct words for yellow and it is a word for white. So it's not being confused as a uh, a snake that has been given too much flash uh, when taken a photograph of and it's um, uh, bleached it out to look white as opposed to actually it being uh, a cream or a white colored snake um, uh, being observed out of the mountain. So it's, it's just kind of like a, and I didn't mean to take us off topic. I was curious as far as uh, That's okay. uh, if, if Keith knew um, uh, more information on that, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually still friends with Paul and uh, I'll try to pick his brain a little bit further on that. But I, I did want to note that um, if you do experiment with your UV bulbs, um, mm-hmm. if, you, if you have your animal in normal uh, light, uh, the animal gives an appearance of, of being stark white uh, against the black contrast. But when you get them under like a, uh, a 10.0 UV bulb, uh, like a reptosun, the yellow pops on them. You can't even believe it's the same animal. Hmm. Definitely, yeah. That would be great information if, if you're able to, to get it, Keith. That would be awesome. Yeah, I can definitely talk to Paul and uh, see what else I can find out. Cool. Research is happening that's, uh, on NPR. That's uh, <laughs> that's similar to what um, when when I was down at the Southern Carpet Fest, um, Bill had taken out his chondro, and we were in his reptile room, and you really couldn't see blue on the animal. We took it out into the sun, and you couldn't. It, it was like staring at a completely different animal. It's just crazy on like the colors that popped out when you just changed the lighting. Um, so it's interesting. Jeez. So, well, all right. All right. 
Back on track, real quick. Uh, Evan, <laughs> what do yeah. you think about the infertility when it comes to Bolins? I know you haven't bred, but you kind of had some experience with these guys. So what do you think, based off of what everybody else said and what you already know? Uh-oh. Um, I clicked them on. Lose, but... Evan? All right. Riveting. All right, so <laughs> we'll, just, we'll circle back around. All right, um, so I guess you're next up, buddy. Yeah, so. <laughs> Whatever you're um, ready. <laughs> He's driving his Bentley. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I guess we, we we hit on this a little bit, um, but uh, let me click uh, Ari on. Um, we clicked on this a little bit, but um, what what are your thoughts uh, when it comes to uh, age and weight um, for successful reproduction in both captivity and in the wild? Uh, well, um, I, like I said, I haven't been able to, to reproduce them. Um, so as on a captive standpoint, I, I would assume um, – you know, uh, leaner animals would obviously be better for reproduction. Um, Bones pythons typically will just eat and eat and eat and eat. Uh, and uh, a lot of people think that's just because uh, the animal is hungry, so I'm going to keep feeding it. So obviously it, uh, it, it's not because, I mean, obviously in the wild they're going to be feeding differently. So, um, But observations I've seen in the wild, um, I've seen animals that are, you know, um, a python. Uh, it's it's not a gigantic snake by any means uh, from the places that I've been, uh, but they are a big animal. Uh, I think uh, one of the largest snakes I've seen was had to have been like, gosh, I want to say like close to ten feet. I mean, it was a big animal. She might have even been bigger. She had been. She was just a really old, you know, you know, animal. Um, and uh, she wasn't she wasn't a gigantic snake in, in girth by any means. Um, but yet she wasn't uh, a wimpy, you know, um, uh, little thing that was hanging around in the mountains. Um, and uh, she was, she had, uh, she had eggs that she was watching too. The one thing that was interesting was that uh, when I uh, took measurements on, on her clutch and everything and the weights on it, uh, when I took her off the eggs, she did not appear to be. If I would have not seen the eggs prior, I would have never thought she would have deposited eggs. That was one thing that was really uh, interesting to me that I caught right off the bat. Like I would have thought she would have shown. Um, some kind of uh, wear and tear, I guess, uh, so to say, that she had been past these these, these eggs, but uh, it didn't appear to me that she had. So I don't know if that was just her, uh, you know, she lucked out and got a good, uh, a decent-sized meal prior um, to uh, depositing the eggs and just kind of would hold her off. But uh, I've seen, uh, you know, typically the body body's uh, slender, but uh, certainly muscular. Um, it's just a, a typical... Uh, healthy looking animal uh it's not obese it's not thin uh it's just uh nothing that would uh indicate otherwise uh but i don't know how it would necessarily reflect or work in captivity since i've uh haven't been fortunate enough to do it yet gotcha any thoughts um as far as age when it comes to captivity and acclimation um it's interesting to say that i i started um a ultraviolet light study several years ago at the zoo, and I, I did it for about three, three and a half years. And uh, essentially, in a, in a nutshell, I was uh, monitoring um, UV basking um, 
routine or just behavior from uh, from a group of three females, and they were varying in age. One of them was like 10, one of them was 13, uh, and one of them was a really young animal. And she had just turned, uh, I think it was, uh, she was almost five. Uh, when she when I put her in the group with everybody to kind of uh, monitor it, and they were all separate enclosures, separate enclosures, kind of uh, very similar to how Frederick has his animals, uh, you know, same water dish, same hide spot, everything's positioned in the same place. So that way, it was the control experiment, same kind of UV lights. I was using the ZoomEd 10.0 because I, I found those were really reliable. Um, you know, small basking light on the other end. Uh, I was able to detect. Uh, follicular development in all the animals with uh, use of ultrasound uh, equipment and as well as just behavior uh, through certain times of the years when the females were building follicles. And uh, where I'm going with this is that um, the older animals, obviously, we saw follicle development with, but uh, we started seeing the behavior that the other females were doing where they would gravitate towards that ultraviolet light area uh, for periods of the day where uh, Normally, they've been, you know, hiding in their nest boxes or, or somewhere else or cruising around or something. But they had all kind of been, like, stacked underneath their, their lights. And uh, the, the younger female started to do that. And she was close to five. And uh, she had uh, – we ultrasound her. And uh, for a whole season, she had uh, developed uh, perfect follicles, uh, follicular development through the whole stage of, you know, growing them and, um, and then uh, dip, uh, absorbing them later on. Uh, uh, and probably is uh, related to giving her access to uh, – uh, improper basking sites like uh, everybody was kind of on. So, but uh, it was interesting enough to see that. Um, and then in the wild, um, a couple of years ago, I found a, a really young female that we were able to observe um, that um, had a, a clutch of eggs. It was probably her first clutch. And she was, she could have been more than six feet and, and she was probably uh, uh, maybe uh, less than uh, your wrist in diameter uh, a girth. Uh, and she was, she was pretty small. I wasn't able to, we weren't able to really pull her out to see because she was really kind of defensive over the eggs because it was her first time, obviously, but uh, she was pretty small. So that was pretty interesting to see because everything I've seen up until then was large animals. Um, let's see. Uh, let me see what, uh, where's he at? There he is. Oh, sorry. Casper's taking a minute to load up here, of course. <laughs> there he is. Casper. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you were, took a minute to load up there. Uh, what are your... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm sorry. I know it's late there for you. Um, what are your thoughts on age and weight? <laughs> what about you? What do you think? I pretty much uh, almost don't feed my snakes, so I'm on the same level as you, Eric. Um, I think they should be uh, lean and mean, pretty much. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, um, my snakes. Uh, I, I don't. I never weigh my snakes, pretty much. When I look at a snake, I can see when it's ready, ready uh, to breed. Um, so, when I bred my all my carpet pythons. I would never uh, even measure them, their length. I would never uh, weigh them. I could just tell them they on their um, face. You know, as you, as you have uh, said sometimes before on other shows, you can just tell the, the thickness and the, oh, the proportions head. Uh, from the head to the body. Um, yeah. And that's 
pretty much just a, a, a you know a, a go for me. So what I would suggest is not to feed your like your bowling eye. So it's a balloon, heavy uh, body, and a small tiny head. That's not what it is, they should look like. They should have a like a fist for a head, a long slender body. So that's what I'm right. going for. Right. And um, I have absolutely no clue on what my snakes even weigh. Um, I've asked Frederick just because I was very curious about how how big his animals were. So I've asked him, so how how much do your snakes weigh? And he he just told me the same. I don't I don't weigh my snakes. I can just tell. And uh, I think we focus way too much on on weights and and length. Uh, you know, as, a, as reptile keepers and snake keepers and breeders. And I think age is pretty much uh, the most important um, factor when it comes for different species. Just like the bird lie, they simply won't go uh, before they're five years old. I think it's pretty much the same uh, for uh, for ball and I. Um, five, six, seven years old, I don't know. Um of course, I've seen my my male. He was uh, super ready last year. He was uh, cruising around in his cage, leaving sperm uh, plucks, uh, trying to court its height and stuff like that. But I think for females, they, they might need a, an extra year or two um, just to be uh, totally in tune with uh, with their own uh, follicular developments and uh, all sorts of stuff. So, uh, gotcha. so. Take your time with uh, just like other scrub pythons and stuff. Um, the bigger old Morelia, take your time and uh, do not sell them <laughs> after uh, a couple <laughs> of years because they're, they're not like they're not like a carpet python or ball python that will breed almost instantly after you get the babies. So um, right, it's uh, okay. it's it's not for the uh, for the faint hearted. It's it's uh, it's for the the months. The keepers that will last, and, right. Uh, right. and I think it's a good patience. thing. Yeah. 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 So, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Very good. Very good. How about you, Chad? I would be honest to say that I don't think that the size has as much to do, or nearly as much to do, as age. Um, I think it takes a while for these guys to become sexually mature, um, regardless of their size. I think age is the key with with not only the bullets but a few other species that kind of come from that area. Um, I mean, I already said he saw a six-foot female on eggs, but who knows how old that six-foot female is because how much food does she actually get in the wild? How much does she consume? How large are the meals? I mean, that snake could have been six, seven, eight years old and only six foot. Um, so honestly, I believe it's definitely, definitely more so age um, and allowing them to become sexually mature um, much more than than just um, size, because I mean you can power feed any snake to get it very large very fast, but that doesn't mean it's developed uh, internally to to be able to sexually reproduce um, uh, successfully. So I definitely believe it's age, just giving them the time, um, way way more than than the actual size of the snake. Okay, um, let me see what. Uh... Frederick has to say. Uh, Frederick, what, what what are your thoughts on age and weight? Uh, obviously, Casper said you don't weigh your animals, but uh, do you have any thoughts as far as, um, you know, uh, when it comes to age? 
uh, well, uh, with my feeding regime, with uh, um, I feed my adults about every third week with uh, quite small preys for the size. So um, I think uh, in in size wise, I think they would be mature around four and five years of age. Uh, in the way I am raising them, uh, and that's uh, and, and that's uh, and about that I'm thinking about their size. So, and uh, and actually, my my adults have have stayed <laughs> for quite a long in the same size. So they're not they're not huge, three meters long animals, and uh, they're really yeah they are in the right size. I want them in. So, uh, uh, yeah, and um, about wild animals, I, I don't know, but I, <laughs> I think they, you, you, I think you will need to add a, uh, one or two or three years for them to mature. I think, like right. in uh, like in other species. But, <laughs> so I don't. <laughs> okay. So I don't have, Very good. have that much to fill in there. Okay. Yeah. How about you, Keith? Um, I'm just I, I'm with these guys, and I'm very happy because I was afraid everybody was going to come on here and have like all these records and data sheets and exactly this happened when <laughs> four minutes to nine and stuff, you know. And I'm like, because that's not me, man. My animals tell me everything I need to know, and uh, it's always been that way and it served me well for thirty plus years of breeding animals. But um, I, I, off the top of my head, just from Frederick's success and everything else, um, uh, you know, I would I would guesstimate the animals need to minimally be four, better five years old, and I'm going to put a guess on the weight of about nine pounds, I would say, um, for the females um, before I would consider it. But, you know, uh, you try young animals that um, aren't ready and, and they're just not going to show any real um, attempts to being bred, so... You, you know, if there's attempts going on, I'm I'm thinking that they're in the range of being ready to be bred. You know, so we, I think that's still to yet to be unfold on uh, really how young these animals can be. I'm, I've had I've had blood pythons, which most people will tell you need to be 10 to 13 pounds to breed, and I had a female that was four pounds drop a clutch of 10 fertile eggs, and they all hatched. Um, right. m- you know, more that's less the weight of what a normal blood pythons considered to be reproducible. And and back in the 80s, I can remember getting animals, different animals in from the wild that you would never think nowadays would have dropped eggs. And back then, you know, nobody in the 70s when I was getting lizards and whatnot, I would get like brown basilisks that were literally the size of your index finger. And they dropped two, three eggs after a week being in your care because they were bred from the wild. You know, I think some of these animals breed and reproduce a lot smaller than than you think, um, and it's only you know we, I'm going back to the days when I was getting imported stuff in just to keep as a pet, and and lo and behold, you'd be getting eggs from it, and think you were the master breeder. Meanwhile, you only had one animal, you know. <laughs> but everything came in. Everything, you know, things were collected back then year round and brought in, and, and nobody was looking at to see if it was grabbed or held onto it. And when you bought an animal, chances were nine times out of ten, you got something that was already bred in the wild and dropped eggs or live babies for you, you know. So I was definitely surprised through the years on the sizes of animals that could could be reproduced. Um, but I would I would guess four to five years and nine pounds um, would be 
an appropriate size to start the tent. Okay. Uh, very good. <laughs> Evan, do you have any thoughts on uh, age and weight for successful reproduction in captivity? No. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Evan. <laughs> that's that's Shrek too, Evan. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay. All right. Go ahead. Anyway, Evan. um, age and weight. I I'm a firm believer in waiting, and you and I both know that sometimes I wait too long. Like you'll come over and be like, "Why isn't this animal in your breeding rotation?" I'm like, "Oh, eat another year." You're like, "You idiot." It's like twice the size of some of my breeders. Just, you know, get it going. So uh, there's a few things you kind of, and especially with different species, I mean, not everybody fits into the cookie cutter. Um, like I've experienced that with scrubs and white lips where it, they're, they're four years or, or two years might not be enough. So you kind of got to hang tight and hold on. So, and what do you think, Eric? Well, uh, again, I don't really have, you know, I've talked about on the show as far as age. Um, I think I'd have to agree with Casper. I think that these are one of those species that probably take uh, a little while to mature. And I think that, um, I think maybe some people have these grand illusions, uh, whether it's from ego or whatever, that they're going to be the first, well, no longer the first, but you know, one of the people that are successful and they're going to be able to do it. And I think it has people run out and pick up these um, snakes and they're not doing it because, uh, and I think Chad hit on this earlier, is that you know if you're passionate about it, you know, you're going to buy a snake for a lot of money that really you <laughs> did success, the chances of breeding it. Um, yeah. you know, are, are, are very slim, but, um, right. you know, so you have to really be into the, uh, into the species. And I think what happens is that, um, I think it's similar to what you see in scrubs. Um, you know, people get rid of the scrubs before they're either acclimated to, um, you know, your environment. And, um, yeah, I think that keeps people, you know, they think that they're going to be able to churn them out, uh, ball python style. You know, grow mm-hmm. them up. You don't put the food to them. Blah blah blah. And and I think that ultimately and it doesn't that work out. A bad approach. Um, what I find funny is that when you're at a reptile show, and if you go to a reptile show long enough, eventually you talk to a guy who is a friend of a friend who bred bolins in his garage in like some place <laughs> yeah. somewhere, and it's like, and you just listen to this guy talk, and you're like, really? You're yet you the stroker ego that much that you have like no freaking idea anyway. But, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that that that's a big thing, and I think that you know you have to you ha- I think it's a it's a patience thing. Um, you and I think that you see the the people that work with with this species in particular, um, really, uh, for lack of a better term, geek out about the species and what makes the species tick. I mean, they're really trying to figure out what what is going on and what what are the cues what are the signs what are the what are the uh you know all these little things that the animal will tell you i mean cuz basically i would think that they're no different than any other type of animal and that they want to reproduce i mean everything on the planet is pretty much geared to want to reproduce so 
it's just a matter of uh i guess uh giving it the right conditions for it to uh to be successful and you know i think one of the thoughts that that they don't feel comfortable i know we've talked about on the show multiple times where if they had a nest box and they were able to get down and and mm-hmm. feel secure i think that that comes with uh any species of python in particular maybe any species of reptile that they need to feel secure in order to reproduce. Um, so uh, that's my thoughts, Owen. Go ahead. All right. So the next question we're going to have for everybody here is, uh, what are your thoughts on the possibility of wild males having a territory, a specific range? Um, I know Ari's probably got to like seen this in person, but the other guys might've seen it just by interactions of their boys in the cages. Um, so, Ari, do you think boys kind of have a range? Do they kind of travel pretty far distances to find girls and things like that? That's an awesome question. Um, I don't know, <laughs> flat out. Um, I've been going to this site for the last three years now. Um, I mean, I've seen I've seen snakes prior to that, but I've been going to this site for the last three, three and a half years where it's had this really um, – healthy population of multiple animals that have been reproducing in that time. I have never come across a male. I still have not come across a male on any of my trips. And I don't know if seriously? that's just because, yeah, seriously. And, and I don't wow. know if that's just because I'm just beelining right to the nesting area or if it's that they're not there. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I've got photographs that were sent to me, um, from my, uh, my guides of, snake of a pair breeding out in the wild um mm-hmm. a couple pairs actually uh so they're there i mean obviously they're getting it done because they're <laughs> they're producing um what right. my gut is telling me and this is just my personal opinion and observation don't quote me on this but i really think the females stay stationary in these nesting areas and i think there's probably three to four females that are hanging out in an area probably, you know, half the size of a football field, and it has perfect everything that they need, and they have nest sites, and they're using them over and over every year or switching mm-hmm. back and forth to other females in this area. And they they leave scat, they leave sheds, and this has all been documented on, you know, on my trips and, and just some of the writing and stuff I've done and, and, and photographs. And they're leaving these biological markers out there uh, for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. It could be either to ward off the other female saying, hey, this is my site, this is my area, you know, stay back. Or it could be a factor for males to cue in on when they're passing through the area. Um, but ultimately, nobody really knows. And uh, it's just one of those things that I'm always and you know, asking myself on these trips when I'm out there um, – because it's like I go out and I have a group of questions I always write down in my notebook with me, and then I sit there and I go through my questions, and I and I sit there on the side of this mountain looking at this animal, and I'm like, okay, I'm trying to answer this, and I'm like, I can't even answer the, the question at all. And, and then I start thinking <laughs> of another question to answer that might help answer the first question that I was trying to answer. So um, nobody really knows, and, and I think over time uh, we'll, we'll kind of understand it a little bit more. And, you know, with this project that I've been working on um, – uh, last year, late last year, with trying to do a, a population study to kind of get an idea of what we're really looking at in this area, how many animals are actually there. Um, I'm hoping that we will come on some males that are hanging out in the vicinity, rather, um, 
than uh, than maybe passing by. But I, I don't really know. I, I think obviously they're queuing in on something, and it, it's probably because it, it's interesting. Once you get to a certain level, a certain elevation level, you start seeing mm-hmm. signs. And uh, it, and it's like right away, like you know, around that sixty-five to seventy-five hundred, uh, you start looking around and you'll see scat. Uh, and then it's like, okay, w- there's snakes around here. And then you kind of follow that around. Uh, I, I saw you know a, a full skeleton last year. Uh, you know, two hundred feet from a nesting female, or a hundred feet from a female sitting out basking from another nest site that had eggs in it from last year. So they're leaving they're leaving signs. They're leaving markers for males to find. That's my opinion. Uh, so I, yeah. I would assume that there's probably several males that are cruising that area or in that area that hang out um, and that are um, that are just breeding with these females. And uh, I don't know. I mean, and the other weird thing is I've never seen a, an abundance of prey items for these snakes either on these trips. And, and I don't know if that's just because I'm the clunky white guy with the giant backpack that's <laughs> climbing up the, the hills, you know, yeah. climbing up the hill screaming, you know, every profanity that I know, and I'm scaring everything away. Um, or if it's just, you know, everything is just, you know, just not out at that time. So uh, I don't really know. But I, I, I feel that uh, I think there's uh, multiple males uh, that are – that are cruising around in certain areas that just routinely uh, uh, pick up on those signs from those females and and, and breed with them. So that is cool. That'd be cool to see if they kind of have a whole range. That'd be awesome. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, Casper, I know you haven't seen these guys in a while, but what can you tell us? uh, You think just by the interactions of your guys at home, do they have a, arranged your males like the crews to be honest i have absolutely no clue uh i think this question is pretty much uh ari's question but uh in fact i would have a question for the other guys yeah all right i would know if uh if anybody have tried to uh to do male combats or have and have uh, already seen males combat in the wild or have heard about the uh, combats between males from the tribe folks. Uh, I think that is uh, that could be pretty interesting to know. Okay, that's um, a part of the of their uh, uh, breeding uh, trials or whatever you could call it. I, I do know it's important for for certain Morelia, so uh, I want to say that it could possibly be important for the bull. That's a good question. You're better than Eric. Good job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Ari, have you have you noticed uh, male combat? Um, or heard of it? Um, I've, I've, I've never it. seen it. Like I said, I, I, I haven't been I haven't found a male. Um, but uh, I've I've been told uh, stuff like that um, that there's you know there's oh, like one or two uh, on a female. Um, I, I'm try, I'm actually while I'm talking, I'm trying to find the photo that was sent to me so I can post it to the group for us to to look at. Um, but um, I've never witnessed it myself. But I mean, these are like I said, like these are observations that I'm being told that are like um, a simple thing, you know, simplistic ideas and, and concepts for these people to to relay. So it's it's not like they're taking it out of contents for saying, oh, you know, he's asking me if this and that. It's like, oh, I saw three snakes that were twisted around one snake. You know, so it's like, okay. You know they're not going to be taking that out of any kind of uh, situation. So it, it's either you know it either is or it isn't. And for them to come up with that concept, 
you know, oh, I'm going to come up with an idea. I'm going to tell them that this is what's really going on. It's just like, yeah, I don't think that's really what's going on. So, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, I've tried it with captive animals, and I've never seen any, like, aggression or biting. Um, I've seen that that typical, like, uh, arching of the back, uh, that kind of real quick jetting kind of posture. Uh, but that was mm-hmm. about it. And it, it wasn't really um, – and I don't know, too, if it's it, – I mean, if it's in captivity, um, if, if it really – um, relates to the size of the enclosure that the animals are all included into. I mean, obviously, if you had a larger enclosure, maybe you would see more of a theatrical kind of display going on where animals are moving around more and twisting and spinning and all this or whatnot, or if it has something to do with being in a smaller enclosure, you see this and that. So, But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, this would probably be a, a good Frederick question, definitely, or, or Keith, Um uh, maybe uh, I don't know how uh, blood pythons, um, if there's any kind of uh, aggregated ag- uh, aggression during reproduction or anything like that, or or, or maybe it might correlate to bolani or something. That I would uh, think possible, certainly. Am I still on, cool. but, uh, guys? Yeah, you're on. I right. um, I was just thinking about the male combat because of the diamond pythons. I know several people keep them in, in, in larger groups of, uh, of uh, four to six adults in one cage. Of course, a huge cage, but um, and, the, and the males are not aggressive like some uh, carpet species, but but they will uh, fight and uh, and it will you know uh, get the females going. So I was wondering if if anybody had thought about you know keeping Bol and I in, in in groups like in in maybe a uh, 2.2 or 2.4 or 3.3. Um, right. If that could be a, another, uh, maybe, a, you know, a, a way to breed them. It, I never have thought of that myself because I imagine it would just be a big, big cage, but if you got the space, why not? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, and But it's, it's. I think it would be a, a good question with the, uh, with the territorial thing uh, of males. Um, yeah. Yeah, because if they're territorial, you'll uh, definitely see it. What, what the other guys uh, have to say about that is they think it's a good idea because <laughs> it has always been a dream of mine to like make a huge cage with uh, with all sorts of, uh, of of awesome stuff in it and and keep them in a large group. But but I know <laughs> I don't know if it, if it was would be effective or or just Possibly. a disaster. Right. We'll see. I mean, why not? You you go do that, Casper, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I mean, there has to be one that has to try it at some point. Yeah, and there has to be somebody <laughs> who does it. Yeah. So, very cool. Um, Chad, what do you think about this? Do you see these guys kind of having a big home range and moving around a lot? Um, before before I hit on that part, I, I would like to chime yeah. in kind of like what Casper just said. Um, as far as keeping them in, in uh, larger groups, I definitely think that he has the ability to do so as his animals age because he has such a large group of them. Um, and maybe yeah. that could be something he could experiment with because we're not we're not far enough along to say this works or this doesn't. Um, so maybe right. he can give us uh, some perspective insight uh, in a few years as his animals grow in age and kind of um, let us know how that works. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the key to it, just because Frederick has been successful, uh, I believe, and I don't, I don't think he's combated his animals um, from the conversations that we have had, but, I, but I'm not sure. Um, 
But as far as the, the original question, I, I really wanted to hit on it just because of listening to Ari's uh, speech at Tinley Park. That's one of the things that I automatically picked up that, that really intrigued me was he has never seen a wild male. Um, yeah. But he goes he goes to the same sites and sees the same females uh, in the same nest year after year, um, which tells me, or at least um, I believe it tells me, that these animals are a little bit more intelligent than we give them credit for to have such mm-hmm. a vast range and always be able to relocate to the same spot. Um, and maybe uh, a male does cruise around in a certain area um, as a territory and breed certain females in his territory. Um, maybe that's why he doesn't see a male. And from what I have been told, obviously I've never uh, produced a clutch of Bowen jet, but from what I've been told from uh, different importers that have worked with the uh, the farm bread um, mm-hmm. and, and different people that have produced them in the past, and I've only talked to a couple of those, Paul Miles being one of them, um, that usually the clutch is, is more female-heavy than males, so maybe there's not as many males r- r- running through the wild as females anyway. Um, hmm. And a male does specifically take a territory, um, and, and not necessarily market territory, but, I mean, they do have the ability to musk. I mean, they musk us if they get aggravated. Uh, maybe musk <laughs> out of territory as they go. Um that, that kind of leaves that scent for other males not to come in, uh, so that they have their their small range of females in their in their uh, area that obviously have been able to find their their nesting areas, their nesting spots year after year after year, um, and it becomes successful that way. So um, I do think that that's definitely a possibility. And I also found it interesting. Me and uh, Frederick had a, a very short conversation the other day about it. He mm-hmm. he rotates his male an unrelated male to his girls, and obviously he is successful. So I'm kind of given, again, a single male, a range of a couple females that he's been successful with. Um, so I kind of think that does pull over to captivity um, a, a bit. So I definitely think that that's, that's a very strong possibility that they do have a range um, where they, mm-hmm. they breed and allocate themselves to a certain a certain area that, that breeds females. Um, so, and I think it would be interesting to, to try as I get more bones, rotate one of my males between a couple girls and, and see if that makes, even if he doesn't breed all of them, just if he breeds one of them, that he's had opportunity to, to breed with other females, if that's, um, if that's a key to success as well. Because, I mean, it's obviously working for Frederick to move a male between girls. Um, and obviously right. they reproduce in the wild and already finding them year after year. Uh, so maybe that's one of the keys. They have to have a, um, a, a rotation or a territory that they feel um, where they have ample opportunity to breed different females. Uh, I don't know, but I think it's a uh, very strong possibility that it's that it is a territorial uh, thing with the with the species. Right. It, it makes sense if you're going to have to rotate multiple animals, and it's not like we haven't heard of reptiles crossing great distances or having you know a set territory with all these girls. So yeah, I can see that. It's kind of cool. Um, Frederick, what do you think from just looking at your animals? Um, do, you, do you see your guys' crews? Do you think that uh, you need to have males in with different females or cycle the guys through? Uh, well, um, the, in the, the, the first clutch I produced, I, I actually rotated both the females mm-hmm. and the males uh, into each other's enclosures. But uh, and and it worked fine the first year, and but then the second and the third time I I actually let the female stay 
in 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 her own enclosure just to uh, just to to make her feel like this is her nest or something, mm-hmm. uh, her territory. So I, I just rotated my unrelated male with, with the females. So uh, and uh, that has been working out fine, and uh, mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't seem to need uh, another male to encourage breeding or get better results or anything. But um, I, I did actually get uh, a video clip from uh, Irie Gill at the London Zoo uh, and it, it was from their uh, enclosure in the exhibition it's quite quite a large enclosure and they mm-hmm. showed me the, the video with two males that were combating and oh. uh, they were entwining together and raising up high and putting down each other really really a heavy fight <laughs> no biting or anything just trying to pull the other male down to the floor over the ground so uh, that was actually the only only time I ever heard about combating between males and bolons but it seems like it do of course of course so yeah so you don't you don't uh, if you're if you're if one of your pairs wasn't really kind of breeding or you didn't really notice would you consider combating your males yeah, but uh, that's not the problem with with bolas. They breed uh, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. You find the yeah. girl just breeds with her. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. I oh, think okay. I think they would breed breed all year round if I put them together, but I, I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's like everybody else is having such problems, and you can't get yours to stop. So I don't know. Well, well, uh, breeding maybe is the wrong word. They are mating. All year around, uh, I think. Okay, <laughs> okay. no babies, yeah. but they're. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Keith, what have you seen from maybe other animals that you've worked with, like the Bloods? Um, uh, what by means of combat being essential, or uh, them having a range or something like that, where they need to cover some ground? Um, well. As far as the range goes, I, I think that could be a big key um, to being more successful with the animals if we really understood um, if, if they do have that. Um, because with the blood pythons, um, a subordinate male kind of gives in to, to the dominant male, and, and you'll think you have a pair, and they'll actually yeah. look like they're locked for, for quite a long time. And you realize it's just a dominant male asserting his dominance. And, and I haven't seen any real combat with them. But um, you would think you had a pair. And I know people that have done it for years thinking that they just can't get their female breed. And lo and behold, I tell them to take the subordinate animal and put it in a cage with a known female and it winds up breeding. Um, right. Bull and I, um, the reason I say that is because I, I go to sperm retention. I've, I've, had, I've had bloods and I've had Burmese pythons lay a fertile clutch, um, not be with a male, and the following year give me another fertile clutch. Um, they're masters at sperm retention. So if we knew if these males um, traveled looking for females that are in season or do they travel and find females at um, just an opportunity and, and breed and the female can retain sperm to the correct um, time when it's good for her to produce her clutch of eggs, um, that would be very really helpful for us. Uh, to yeah. know that because, you know, bloods, I'd put them together in October, 
through December, but I was getting my eggs May through July. Um, and I've had them go a full year um, on one breeding and produce eggs. But I also bred Sanzinia and, and Dougal's boas, and, and those guys I seem to have to keep together for extended periods of time because the window of opportunity seems so small that if you didn't have your male with the female at the right time, uh, you weren't getting fertile clutches. So I wrestle with that, with keeping my male with the females for a longer amount of time um, because I, th- I, I have a feeling with Bull and I that there's a shorter window of opportunity than, say, the blood pythons where you have months in between a breeding when the female will use the sperm to fertilize her clutch. Um, I, do, I do like uh, Frederick was saying, though, I, I started introducing my males to the females based on things that I've heard from Ari, uh, Ari and mm-hmm. feeling that the, the males are more on the prowl and the females retain in their local area and the males find them. And I do notice my males are a little bit more aggressive breeding when I do that scenario. Um, I've even had males, I showed a picture on Ari's uh site where the male is actually curled over his own back and, and, and he's using his spurs and spurring himself um, because he's so worked up being put into that female's cage. Um, I do also tend to leave, it seems my females on their nest box, I have a, a top access into the nest uh, or whatever you want to call it, chamber. And the females mm-hmm. seem to only put their uh, urates up the top around the hole of that um hide box, and it's almost like it's the invitation to the male, here I am, come and get me. Um, Weird. So I, okay. I, I tend to leave, I, when I clean those uh, tops off, I tend to leave a little bit of residue behind because she's going through so much ter- uh, trouble marking that area that I, I tend to leave it there for uh, just extra stimulation to the male. But as Frederick says, the males uh, don't seem to lead, need a lot of stimulation to go to work. Um, so... I, I, I don't really know where Ari would really know better than I as far as the wild, but in captivity it definitely seems like I get better breeding activity when I put the male to the female's cage, which would suggest that the males roam more than the, the females do. Okay. I, I I can see that, and according to Ari, they, they do that stuff in the wild, too, so it's, uh, we may be on to something. All right, so um, Evan... What do you think? Do you think that they're more of a ranged animal? Do they kind of cruise around? Do your guys move constantly? Yeah, my guys are on the move constantly. Uh, okay. I actually find my females move a little a lot more than my males do. Uh, the males stay in their logs quite often and uh, just don't move around as much as the females do. Uh, I guess I have four four females, and they're all super active. Now, you said you guys are kind of on the younger side, right? Um, I mean, I have a, you know, I have one that's about uh, 2011, and I have uh, a male that's 2012. Uh, the rest are, you know, yielding and two years old. Um, just, those guys are always active, but I mean, if I go look at the, you know, the few that I have uh, and just yeah. looking at them, my female tends to be a lot more active than uh, hmm. than the male is. Maybe they haven't established their ranges, or I don't know. So it's so, it's so really listening to everybody because, as much as everything's the same, everybody has a yeah. lot of different opinions. 
Oh, and yeah. I think also depending on your setup, you know, um, uh-huh. I mean, my female, you know, as soon as all, uh, you know, the cages have inserts on the, uh, between them, uh, the female will be always the one that will move over into the male's area before the male will move into her area. So that is true. a little contradictive yeah. to, uh, you know, males looking for females. Um, <laughs> the girl is always looking to take over space. And, it, you know, it's funny when I do do that and I let them together, you know, for mm-hmm. a day or so, um, I find that the females, you know, and they have a couple of different spots that they can, you know, hide in their cages and uh, their closures, but uh, the female always goes to that male's favorite spot and the male gets pushed to the other side to where the female, uh, you know, into the female side of the cage, but never actually uh, seems to take root in her spot. Okay, so, hmm, see, that's interesting, because you're like, you said, everybody else does this, your guys do that, but it's like, again, everybody's animals are different, everybody's setup is different, everything's totally different, and you might have guys that just act a little bit differently, so who knows, it's all this, there are 10 million ways to skin the cat, so, Eric, what do you think? Oh, never mind, you told me to skip you, but you didn't type fast enough. (laughs) <laughs> good good job anyway <laughs> this is what happens Eric and I have a constant window open where we text back and forth and he does not send the instructions fast enough uh, so we're going to move on to the next one and that is what do you guys thought on prey size um, and, and how it relates to growth rate um, Ari I know you haven't seen any prey but what do you think these guys are eating in the wild, and how does that dictate to how big they get? Well, uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't specifically seen um, too many prey items uh, out there. I think this last trip I found a, a skink, and that was the first other reptilian life I found when I was out there, and it was a little one. So I was like, wow, maybe the babies are feeding off this, which I'm sure they do. But um, I'm told that uh, they feed heavily off the uh, – common couscous or the spotted couscous which is like north america's version of the opossum and uh they actually uh will nest in their um in the couscous nests and they're they take them over and they're, they're perfect for them they maintain the temperature and moisture levels and security and all this and they're kind of mounted like uh on these uh kind of steep inclined areas that the sun hits down perfect um and they're a relatively large prey item um they also have been heard uh feed off of uh birds, but I would see them as being very opportunistic, whatever they come across, uh, because uh, realistically, we don't know what their frequency of feeding is in the wild. In captivity, they have, you know, they have, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people feed them very heavily because they think they're always hungry, but it's, you know, bones, pythons will always eat, like we talked about earlier. Um, So that's not necessarily the best thing for them. But in the wild, um, everything would suggest to me that, you know, they feed whenever they have that chance, like that opportunistic feeding. Um, You know, if they find something, you know, it could be a month or two before they get another meal. Um, I don't see the, the, the females that I'm visiting um, are pretty stationary. So for them to be having that like high metabolism that we see really in captivity on on a lot of snakes where they're constantly shitting and passing urates and just constantly cruising around as adults, uh, I don't see that with the adults that I'm seeing out there. They're very meticulous and very uh, deliberate in their movement and their uh, behavior 
they're out early morning when the sun clear or when the sky clears open and bat to bask, and then they're gone when the cloud cover comes over and they're back in their nest. So, I mean, an animal, you know, certainly could survive a long time with behavior like that and not having to feed constantly um, as some of these uh, uh, higher energetic species that that we're used to working with. So. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I hope that answers the question. I, aside from that, no. I don't really have anything else. I mean, <laughs> but that's, it, it's better than most people. I mean, you know, I have oh, no okay, idea cool. That the... works. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't ask me that question. I would have no idea. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it'd be, um, it'd be very interesting. Um, I've thought of doing like a stomach uh, content analysis, which would be neat. And, and I've talked to a lot of the guides and the, the hunters out there. And, you know, if they've caught one, you know, if I come across, you know, they hear them coming, they're like, oh, you know, we'll find one. I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't catch it. Leave it where it's at. I, I don't want to disturb mm-hmm. it. I want to, I want to observe it, what it's doing naturally. And, and that way I can, you know, see what's going on. So don't bother. But uh, they've told me that right. you know, before, before I've come out there, they've seen animals and they've, you know, picked it up and uh, it's uh, regurged like a couscous or a bird or something like that. But, uh, you know, nine out of 10 times it's a couscous that comes out. Um, and uh, I mean, they're a decent sized meal for, for anything out there. So uh, I would definitely, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a, a prey item that size would sustain an animal, you know, for a good amount of time. That's not having to con you know, that's not, you know, constantly cruising around, uh, uh, looking for stuff, uh, but I don't know. I mean, uh, it's still a, an area of, of interest, and uh, I hope we I hope we have a better uh, understanding for it soon. I mean, or you know, who knows? Yeah, it would definitely be cool. Okay, Casper, uh, what are your thoughts on diet, prey size, and how do you think that would regulate your growth? And what are you feeding your younger guys? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, as I've said before, I feed very sparingly, just as uh, yeah. pretty much all the other guys. Um, I feed my my young uh, young uh, animals around every ten to fourteen days, and uh, my adults once every third week or a month, pretty much. And uh, I try always to feed smaller prey items and just mm-hmm. uh, several prey items at a time instead of a huge fat rat, I would go with uh, several small rats instead. Um, their, their metabolism is extremely high, and if you feed them a lot, they will shit a lot. And uh, <laughs> okay. it's pretty much reason to uh, to feed them that much, um, other than to get a, a huge golden eye, which is not my goal. So. Um, that's pretty cool. much it. Uh, I think they will grow a, a, a way more healthy, uh, a way more healthy rate if you if you feed them this way instead of uh, instead of feeding them a lot. And um, as we have said before, uh, if you feed them a lot, they will not get very old and probably die of a fatty liver or, or something like that and get a lot of uh, weird diseases, uh, which will not happen to a healthy. Uh, Slender specimens that uh, that eat a lot less and will get a lot older. Just like uh, as Eric has said before, uh, small Chinese people that don't eat a lot they also get like 120 years old. And fat yeah, people that uh, eat pizza three, uh, three times a day they uh, 
They tend not They're to get over die. 50. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure he stole that one from Nick, but, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> give that one to Eric this time. It's just, yeah, it's just a fantastic quote because it's so right. And, uh, and we often, uh, you know, forget about the whole feeding machine and how you should do it because we just want to feed our snakes. True. Pretty much that's, yeah. True. Right, so uh, I don't I don't have a I don't have a comment around uh, about uh, their growth rate because I I have not kept them long enough to to really know how different they grow uh, if you feed them different kinds of prey and I've only fed them uh, quails and uh, small rats and pretty much mm-hmm. I've done that with all animals I haven't I have never tried them to feed uh, never tried to feed them big prey items. So I, I can't compare to how they would grow in in if in that order, uh, compared to what I do. So uh, very cool. So Eric, did you have something or no? I thought you I thought you were commenting. Ah, yeah, it's right. You back in the basement. Anyway, um, <laughs> Chad, how about you? What do you uh? How do you feel about your guys with the prey items, with the size, and how their growth is affected? Um, small, diverse items. Like I said earlier, I do I do small rats, medium rats, chicks, and quail. Um, mm-hmm. I feed them. I feed them the exact same thing. Uh, if I feed them, if I do a small rat, they both get a small rat. Uh, that meal. If I do a chick, they both get a chick, etc. Um, as far as growth rate, my female is is definitely girthier than my male. Um, they okay. eat the exact same thing, but she definitely has more size. They're the same length, um, but she does have a heavier body mass, but it's not heavy in an unhealthy way, as we uh, we spoke on earlier. She's just she's a lean, uh, healthy, muscular-toned snake, um, where he's the same way. He's just not as girthy. Um, but, yeah, definitely smaller, diverse meals on a not a frequent basis, but like I said, I, I feed them a little less than I do everything else, but on a, a regular basis. Um, I'm like, I feed them every 10 days, but, you know, sometimes a chick or a quail only weighs, you know, a, a few ounces, so they're not getting uh, big meals every 10 days. They're not getting heavy meals. I mean, like, um, the biggest thing is a medium rat, and I think my medium rats are usually about 125 grams, 130 grams, something like that. Um, so mm-hmm. that's that's the biggest meal they ever get. Uh, small, diverse meals on a, on a fairly regular schedule, um, and, and I believe the snakes are, are healthier that way. You have a higher chance of of being successful in breeding if you keep them healthy on smaller, diverse meals. That makes sense, and I've heard that approach with scrubs and other animals as well. So I, I, I do that with—I mean, I do that with a lot of other species that I work with. I mean, I give some of my carpets, quails, and chicks, uh, which are kind of along the same thing. I, I give green trees very, very sporadic meals. Um, I don't feed them a lot at all. Even I'll offer them chicks sometimes because they're naturally bird eaters in the wild. Um, mm-hmm. I do my white lifts the same way. I'll give them small meals. And then uh, blackheads, I definitely do. I diversify their meals intently just to keep them lean and muscular. I mean, they get everything. Uh, they get reptiles, you know, rodents, chicks, quail, fish. Uh, I give them everything to keep them diverse, and I think that's uh, a big thing with, with pythons in general is keep them healthy, keep them thin with small, diverse meals. That's cool. I've I've heard that kind of stuff, and I've thought about it a few times. But that's awesome. We're thanking uh, our doing. <laughs> I'll get on that. So, um, uh, Frederick, uh, how about you? What do you uh, feed your guys, and uh, 
how large do you keep their pry items, and uh, have you seen that affect their growth, especially with the little guys, the, the hatchlings? Uh, <clears throat> well, when I first uh, acquired my first pair, when they were uh, juveniles or babies, mm-hmm. they, um, uh, I wanted them, of course, I wanted them to grow, grow as fast as possible, to breed them as fast as possible, or try to breed them. But uh, uh, I actually got the problem quite fast with them uh, regards for me. So uh, I, I put back the, the size of, of the prey and, uh, mm-hmm. and I started to, started to feed them more more rare, uh, seldom. And uh, but I was I was amazed how fast they were growing, although they got small prey items and uh, not so frequently. So uh, I kept kept it that way. So I've always Fed my my bowlers with a smaller praise and uh, not not very often. Um, so uh, I feed my adults about every third week with a medium-sized rat uh, around 200 to 250 gram. So that's that's not a big rat for a large snake. And um, uh, when it comes to hatchlings, uh, they are actually. <laughs> very hard to, to start uh, to get start feeding on on rats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have uh, I actually was very frustrated with a with the first clutch because I couldn't get them to feed. And, oh no! Uh, and uh, they started to get very thin, and the skin was getting loose, and I was really worried. So I actually uh, contacted the Cameron Tepadellen at Bushmaster because I know he has had hatched, hatched, hatched out some uh, some eggs from some wild females. Mm-hmm. And he told me that he had hatched about over 150 babies, and uh, he didn't get anyone to feed on the rats for the first time for, as, as a first prey. So he, he tried everything like I, I did before, and uh, the babies get scared of live food, that they, they just want to get away from live live mice, live, mm-hmm. live rats, and uh, they only strike in defense. They want uh, like like a green three python. You can trigger them to to strike, and then they will coil up and and start yeah. to start to swallow the prey. But not bolons. They will they will get scared. They will get away. And they will only strike in defense. So he he started to get some success when he started to scent the rat pups with the uh, with chickens and mm-hmm. uh, then he started to get some of them to, to to eat and eventually week after week another one starts and uh, and the rest came along as well and um, that is what i'm doing with my with my baby bowlers uh, and they are actually it, it could take uh, up to 10 or 12 weeks before they will accept a rat pup with chickens and and uh, I only leave leave it on the on the cage floor, and they will actually yeah. slowly start to tongue flick it, and then uh, just start to swallow it. Very easy and very gentle, no striking, no coiling or anything. They just open them up, and so uh, they are very strange. <laughs> I, wow. I, I, yeah, very very special. So I, I would I would really I would really like to know what they are feeding in the wild as first prey because. Uh, unfortunately, I have not. Uh, I have not. Uh, I, I cannot get any quails over here. 
or any quail, <laughs> or any quail babies. No, um, uh, I I have actually uh, some people. Uh, there has been a lot of people contacting me for around the world, and uh, some people uh, they have uh, bought some uh, import babies and they contact me. They're frustrated. They are not feeding, and uh, I'm trying to to, to explain about uh, the chicken scent method with the rat pups. And uh, some are contacting me again, and it's, uh, it doesn't work. And uh, and I told them try try some uh, quail babies, newly hatched quails. And uh, then I've actually heard that they have uh, actually striked the prey and coiled up ar- around it. So it seems like uh, that's more like uh, uh, that's something they really like. Yeah. So more natural, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but that's my experience. Awesome. So, big growth rate despite having smaller prey. That's uh, that's kind of cool. So, um, Keith, what have you seen when it comes to feeding Bolins their prey items as opposed to other animals you've had in your collection? Um. <clears throat> Well, like everybody says, they will not refuse a meal. I mean, when you open the door, that's what they're looking for. They're, they're, they're coming out. They're either saying, who's coming into my territory or what do you have in your hand that's going to be good to eat? You know, they definitely yeah. are looking for food all the time. Um, but I, I I keep my prey items uh, smaller on the smaller side too. But there's a lot of factors that go into your feeding regimes of your animals other than uh, size or frequency. I mean, the temperatures that we keep the animals and other variables come into play for how they're utilizing the food that we're giving them efficiently to, to go into growth and not becoming obese. So I try to look at all the factors, but I definitely keep uh, the animals on the smaller side. And like Chad said, I try to do diversity, but the way I do diversity is, um, and a lot of this stuff is just to make me feel better, I'm sure, than, than the animals, but you know, <laughs> it's part of the hobby, right? I mean, I, I right. always say, like like tropical fish, you know, people in tropical fish, they'll spend $10,000 on a setup to keep a $100 animal, where in the reptile trade, we don't have that mentality. We we spend $10,000 on an animal to keep it in a $10 plastic tub, you know? So. <laughs> Yeah, a lot, yeah. A, a lot a lot of the mentality uh, going into the hobby is, I think, uh, just for us to feel better about ourselves. So with uh, my prey, I'm, I'm able – I have a local breeder that breeds all my rodents for me. And, and when I was with blood pythons, you know, I was buying a 1,000 rats at a time or whatever. But now, you know, I'm buying 20 rodents a week or whatever. But I get mm-hmm. them alive, and, and, and I can feed them different uh, things to basically gut load them with different uh, – things throughout the year so that they're getting a varied diet, you know. Um, so I experiment with that. And like I say, it's, it's probably for more me just playing around with things than, than the needs of the animal. But I do agree with Chad that diversity is very good, and I do feed smaller items. Uh, one thing I did like want to comment on, though, is, uh, and I don't know if Frederick has tried this, but with young animals that are especially nervous or skittish, like blood pythons are extremely uh, more, most people think of them as aggressive animals, but it's really that they're insecure and nervous animals, and that's why they're so mm-hmm. aggressive. And once you learn to, to get around that, you know, you can handle your animals without a problem whatsoever. But with the babies, um, what I've found, animals that are shy and reclusive like that and are 
straight feeders and usually are shut down at the slightest disturbance, what I would do is I'd give them a small plastic hide and we'd fill their uh, Tupperware with sphagnum moss, dry sphagnum moss, and, and the animal would get secure in that situation and eventually start sticking its head out in a hunting mode. And when you put a small rodent in that um, container, the rodent would be walking on that sphagnum moss, but the snake felt secure. And, and it almost acted like a spider web. Like it, mm-hmm. it, the snake was secure, but it felt that walking and, and crawling and its confidence would build up to the point where it would take. And I'd say, you know, out of a couple hundred baby blood pythons that I'd raise every year, you know, you'd have 10 of the most stubborn animals. But when I resorted to that, they would take prey almost every time. And I'm just wondering if that would be some kind of a method to go to um, with the bull and I, being that they seem almost fossorial in, in some way that they're always in their nest sites and, and, and underground when the temperatures aren't right. I wonder if a feeding mode may be for them to uh, hunt more from the ground up maybe. You know what I mean? Um, like carpet yeah. pythons, which you guys know all too well. When I used to breed carpet pythons, the best way to get them feed was from a perch, elevated perch where they're striking down on the. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, if you didn't have that in that, a lot of the cages with those guys, they they wouldn't take off. But you put that in there, and they're feeding right away. So sometimes it's not so much the prey item, but it's the attempt of introducing the prey item into the neonate's cage to to, to get them started to feel just secure to feed. You know. Just a, yeah. just wanted to throw that out there. But, again, I keep my prey items small. Um, I probably feed a little bit more frequently than the, the other guys, but um, my animals definitely are long and lean, um, and I try to keep them that way for sure. Very cool. And uh, the sphagnum moss thing I can attest to, I use it for my uh, taboos. So I agree with that one. It kind of makes them all feel a little bit happier. Um yeah. Evan, what do you do with uh, your guys? What do you guys? What are you feeding your guys when it comes to prey and size? Well, my my small ones, my yearlings, um, are on small rat pups. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from from my point of view, you know, as more of a collector hobbyist opposed to right. uh, the you know group that we have here and a lot of people that might be listening that are looking to get into a, a bowlins. Uh, I've found from uh, you know, buying a, a fresh, you know, one of these farm, farmed animals um, that when I fed them every four days for a period of time um, mm-hmm. and get them out of that stage where they're, you know, they feel and they're much more delicate when they're babies. They have a very uh, velvety, soft texture to their skin. Um, mm-hmm. And trying to get them out of that, that stage, in my opinion, you know, as quick as possible because that, that's when they're the most vulnerable. So yeah. last year's last year's group that I had um, with dehydration problem, they blistered, um, uh, and I tried a million different things. I listened to some of the best tell me what the problem was. Bushmaster at Cameron said to me, feed the shit out of these things. He says, get mm-hmm. them to shed, get them out of that, that delicate skin. And that's what I did. Um, and lo and behold, uh, the blister shed off, that female... Uh, I lost two out of that group. Uh, the female mm-hmm. survived. Um, and the group that I had again this year also blistered a short time after I had them. But I wasn't doing the same things as I did last year as far as missing them. Um, right. They had, they had a pseudomonas, which I mentioned earlier. 
The ones that yeah. I fed uh, more aggressively uh, grew quicker, got out of that, that juvenile stage, um, and now they're beasts. As far as my yeah. adults, I feed them, you know, uh, every 10 days or so, not huge not huge meals. Uh, one thing that I do, because I get some, again, the hobbyist, every one of my animals has a feeding card. Every time an mm-hmm. animal sits, sheds, eats, it's recorded. And as long as I stay in with, within the perimeters of the size prey that I'm feeding them, um, like clockwork, I know it, like my big girl, she's going to shed every 35 days. And it's within a day or two. Um, and getting the animals into that type of cycle, you know, gives me that comfortability that, uh, you know, they're in, they're in good condition, they're growing the right way, um, and, you know, the consistency. Um, you know, once in a while with the bigger ones, uh, I'll give them a, an extra week off just to clean out. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, from my point of view and, you know, people that are going to buy, you know, new, you know, animals that just came into the country, um, they probably, you know, haven't had their first meal yet. Uh, the ones the Bushmaster this year uh, didn't have, uh, in my opinion, they said, you know, that they uh, that they had their first meal. I was force-feeding these things for months until, you know, I really, uh, you know, they started dropping. I tried my best. I had already uh, done cultures and whatnot. But, uh, you know, feeding them at the beginning and getting them out of that fragile stage, you know, get them stronger and once they get to that point, you know, they're going to eat and they're going to be nice. They're going to be just aggressive, aggressive uh, uh, babies that, you know, are going to do well and easy to ha- easy to deal with at that point. You know, getting them started, that's the hard part. The quail yeah. is a big big factor, you know, and uh, um, scenting, scenting them at the beginning. They tend to like rats rather than mice at the beginning, um, but the scenting is a big thing. I actually... Uh, found using uh, the you know cutting the animal open and just smearing the liver of the kidney of uh, the mm-hmm. quail, I got a better response doing that than um, just uh, keeping the animal uh, hot and defrosting them both together. I've heard about putting uh, um, um, down feathers from the quail, you know, on the first prey or you know for a bullens that's not eating. Um, but I found, you know, the blood in the kidney, you know, I got a completely different response, which was, you know, either that response where they just nudgle up and open their mouths and just take it daintily, or mm-hmm. you know, they come at it like a mamba. And a big difference. But, you know, again, I, my next group of, uh, you know, yearlings that I'll, you know, come across the next time they're in the country, next time Cameron has, you know, I'm just, you know, feeding... Feeding them, feeding them as much as you can, and not overdoing it. Um, right. Cameron again said to me every four days, and I did that. And you know, the snakes survived. There were no issues, no problems. But you know, the ones that are coming in fresh, you know, they they still are fragile. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say but, they they are, and I've seen that that skin is easily terrible and very very soft. So you kind of got to yeah, watch I mean, that I stuff. Had, I actually had one that that shed um, that was the last of the four that were not doing well. And Mm -hmm. when he shed, he actually shed, his skin came off with his shed. And, you know, that was, you know, part of the whole dehydration thing that uh, these bones, you know, that occurs in them in the beginning. You know, a lot of water is, you know, essential also for them. 
You know, they drink more than any of my other snakes. Yeah, I, I've, I've definitely seen that with uh, scrubs. So, uh, and I've seen that personally where I ended up ripping the side of, an, of a Malukin for just our whole skin came right off. And that was, yeah, they are very fragile. I mean, so. you know, I had sent some pictures of it to Ari, um, you know, and it was just, just to, to flick that picture and to see a baby like that that, uh, you know, had been so, through so much trauma and I tried everything that I could. Um, yeah. You know, and taking the money aside, you know, it's more about the animal. And that's why, yeah. you know, I enjoy these things. But once you get them going, um, they grow quick, they eat great. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, Eric, you had the follow-up question. You want to hit that now? Yeah, there was uh, there was a couple <laughs> there was a couple questions I had for uh, Ari. Um, first, um, as far as as far as um, feeding in the wild, um, what are your thoughts as far as cycle feeding for these guys? Do you, is that something that you're seeing with the uh, animals uh, that you're or the species that you're witnessing when you're over there? Is there any kind of like cycle to? Uh, to what these like guys a, a seasonality thing, on? or are you yeah. like a seasonality thing, more or less? You know, initially yeah. before um, uh, Frederick um, made us all look bad and started producing them, I um, <laughs> would, <laughs> I thought maybe that you know because I was thinking that you know we're obviously overlooking something and maybe there's an environmental you know stimuli that's really being a trigger to to allow the females to go all the way or something we're just missing, you know, cause it's kind of turning to think of that box. And one of the things I thought of was, uh, you know, a seasonality with uh, abundance of food for different times of the year, you know, signaling, you know, for the female to kind of load up on fat storage cause she knows she's going to be sitting in a hole with some eggs or whatever, or, you know, she's going to more or less produce uh, the, during a time where there's going to be an abundance of uh, baby uh, baby birds or fledglings or, or, or young rodents uh, in the spring or something like that for the babies to hatch out and start feeding on. Um, so, but I've honestly I've never seen anything that's been out of the ordinary as far as a seasonality or uh, a time of the year where I'm seeing more birds or uh, more mammals or anything like that. It's just a really interesting part of the world and. Um, and I'm sure, you know, the area I'm at, because I get so many people ask me, it's like, you know, oh, have you seen these scrubs while you're there? Have you seen any of this and that? It's like, you know, I'm not looking for any of that stuff. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm straight, I'm straight bowling's all the way up. And it's like, you know, and I could have, you know, blinders on from, you know, I could be walking next to the abominable snowman and not even know it. But um, I, I've never yeah, seen anything ask you really to answer your question. <laughs> oh sweet, cool. Yeah. Yeah, we can do that too. Well, we'll have to let Frederick no. go to sleep before because I I feel bad yeah. that he's still up. So yeah. I mean, yeah, Casper, no, I can care less about because he's taking the day off. So, um, yeah. but um, I, I, you know, I've never really seen anything to to suggest you know that there 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 is. But I mean, I'm I'm not there every every day. I've been there pretty much every month of the year except for a couple months in. Uh, you know, even the rain and all that stuff, the temperature is pretty consistent throughout the year. It might rain a little bit more, might be a little colder, might be a little longer where it's colder, might be a little longer where it's rainier. But I've never seen anything to really suggest that there, that there was, but I certainly wouldn't say that there isn't. Um, I mean, as with anything. It's, uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, diets is, uh, dietary consumption and what they're feeding on in the wild has always been a really interesting um, area for me to, to, to follow through with. It's just, you know, like two lifetimes it'll take if that, you know, if, maybe even more to be able to really understand it all the way just 
with with being able to observe them. Um, that's just a tough one. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I know, and you cool. hit on uh, hit on uh, Graham's question, and then um, we'll. Uh, well, then we got to let people up. who live across oceans go to bed. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, Graham's question is: uh, He'd like to ask uh, if the ambient temperature method works for raising these animals up to adulthood, or do they need a hot spot and a cold end? Uh, with them being a you misspelled mountain um, species that are uh, subject to cold periods uh, at different altitudes and are actively sh- that actively shy away from hot spots, or do they bask for a few hours a day? Um, like, uh, say, a diamond python, um, with them and with larger prey items, will they kind of bask out? I guess basically what he's saying is, um, can you do that ambient temperature, my room is set for this much, and whatever may happen is happening, or do they? Get, or do these guys need a hot spot? Uh, I guess we'll start with uh, Ari. Oh, okay. Um yeah, it's a it's a really good question, and uh, there's several questions that are in that. Um, in there, and I'll yeah, try to hit it as quick as I can so everybody gets a stab at it. Um, yeah, I think once again, kind of like what we initially were talking about, you know, trying to replicate this exact environment is just, you know, it's a difficult task, and I don't know if it's a task that you can even actually do accurately. So, I mean, obviously. I would suggest if you were maintaining animals in as with how I've done with my animals and I know a lot of other people have as well is maintain the animal how you're going to want to maintain the animal as it's an adult. Um, you know, I definitely would provide access to certain things that you're going to want to provide later on in life. That's my personal opinion. If I'm going to be allowing this animal to bask, I'm going to be providing a bath. If I'm going to allow this animal to have a nest box, I'm going to have it a nest box when it's a young animal. So it has that as it's growing, as it's maturing, as you're learning to distinguish different behavior with the animal while it's in your possession and, and, and such. So uh, there's my in a nutshell, so that way you can jump on to the next person. All right, well, Casper bailed on us because he's... Uh, oh, Casper. I know. So we're just going to go straight to Chad. So... Um, Chad, how do you think these guys? Do they need a hot spot, or can you kind of run an ambient on them? Um, I keep mine. I do. I do give everything a uh, a hot spot, but with the Bowens, I do keep the hot spot cooler than I do everything else, um, with the exception of the Malukans. Um, like I said, their hot spot's only about eight degrees. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. I just let everything run ambient. Um, but I do offer the same thing from from babies um, to adults. And like I said, I've only got the pair, and I've, and I've kept them the same way the entire time um, from from when I first got them when they were just a few weeks old. I put them a hot spot in there. I kept them in a um, one of the Starlight like square um, boxes, not a tub, but like it's I guess it's probably about 20 inches tall or so. Um, mounted yeah. some PVC perches in there, put a small hide box in um, with a, a warm a warm spot, and then everything else I just let them uh, maintain an ambient room temperature. I do the same thing with them now. They have a hide box or a nesting box, whatever you want to call it, um, a warm, a small warm spot uh, in their cage, and everything else runs ambient. And the way that I've got them set up, I have it so a bit of a, a breeze comes on one side of their cage to keep them in the the mid to high 60s, the, the other side of the cage, um, so that they always have that cooler area to go to. And believe it or not, that, that cage, that area of my cage always stays a little bit uh, – I keep the water bow on that side. 
Um, so it always stays a bit more humid on that side of the cage than the other. Um, uh-huh. And they, they a lot of times they stay on that side of the cage more, even though their their nest box is more so in the middle and kind of creeps over to the warmer side. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I definitely I definitely agree with the um, ambient mostly, but I still get my hot spot. But I don't have a uh, I don't have a heavy basking area to be honest with you. The only lighting I actually use on these guys is, is the UV. Um, I use a Zoom Ed 10. Um, I don't actually have a basking area; just a uh, just a warm spot. Cool. Okay, so that's a little bit of a different, but they do tend to like the cooler sides. So, okay, very cool. Yep. Um, so, uh, Frederick, how about you? Do you uh, provide your guys a basking spot, or do you kind of just let them do it, whatever the room temperature's at? Um, my my baby snakes are kept in the room temperatures. They don't have a hot spot or anything. I, I just uh, oh, I, I can can do this in Fahrenheit, but I have around 27 degrees Celsius during the days and around 24 uh, degrees Celsius during night for them, and they are thriving and doing fine. So, so uh, when they get a little bit bigger, I move them to a larger cage where I can offer a hotspot. So uh, that's that's the way I'm doing, but. Uh, uh, I was going to round this up a little bit quick because I really need to go to bed and get some sleep yes. for work. Um, yes. And uh, I just uh, I just uh, want to thank everyone. And uh, I would also like to say that uh, I will uh, soon have an auction of one of my baby Bolands. Oh. Uh, and uh, I will auction it out. And uh, all of the funds are going to Ari's project with uh, research in the wild. Wow. So I, so I hope, uh, hope the everyone can. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I hope everyone it's can. It's just because uh, you're sleepy. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, he's <laughs> lost his mind. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I think, I think uh, I, I, I've, I've been, uh, I had my, my share of success here, so I think I can share a little bit and, uh, I want to give something back to to the Bolands I stole from the wild in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. So we'll, uh, I really appreciate that, Frederick. Uh, it's, you know, it's like I said earlier, it's it's just awesome that uh, we were able to get this group together and just kind of, you know, answer or try to help answer a lot of these questions and, and just talk openly and just a bunch of friends just, you know, enjoying what we do and i mean that's what it's all about that's that's what it's always been about for me and uh it's just really uh, a great thing i'm hoping because we did this it's really going to just you know open up opportunity for other people and uh uh and for everybody else so that's a good thing mm. yeah and i and i and i was thinking this uh, auction could be going worldwide because uh, i think i can uh, I can bring it to uh, to the to the NRBC show in uh, in in the states in February, I think. So uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the horrible thing. Get the checkbook yeah. out, Owen. <laughs> and so so stay tuned for my my reptile site on facebook where i'm going to put it up uh pretty soon so oh, chad's already putting bids in <laughs> <laughs> that's good it's very good cost 
Yeah. yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we'll definitely link all that on Morelia Pick of the Week and all the uh, Facebook pages for the radio show. Try to get as much traffic over there, although I doubt you'll need that much help. Um, it just <laughs> Once someone says Bowling's auction, I'm pretty sure they're going to be coming out of the woodworks for that one. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah it wouldn't um, be... Would be nice to see what happens. Yeah. Um, so, okay. so I'm just going to round this up and uh, go go to bed. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Right. Thank you, thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk later. Talk later. Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. Bye bye. Good night. Good night. <laughs> All right. So. I guess we'll keep moving down the list real quick. Um, Hit me! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Eric, you unmuted people too early. Um, the, uh, Keith, what do you think about the uh, um, ambient temperature versus um, if you can, if you have to provide these guys a hot spot when you're raising them up? I told you guys, I, I I got a tough act to follow coming after Frederick and his advice. You know, it's hard to, to follow up on that. Um, I have a yeah. super, 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 super sophisticated method of uh, ambient temperatures in my room. It's called a window. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that, uh, you know, new cow and uh, the placement of my room and everything else for the bull and I that, the window uh, method is working wonderful for me. Um, my highest temps in the room ambient are 72. And like I say, I can go down into the 40s if I want at night. So um, I'm just using that. And the animals that I've had and raised have all been black already. They they weren't red phased like what Evan has worked with. His insight on that was uh, very helpful to me going forward, I hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, animals at the black stage um, are already pretty established, and I cycle them just as my adults because um, I definitely believe that years of um, being in the same routine is going to be very helpful for, for breeding attempts down the road. So I cycle all my, my animals, so whether they're um, a year old or, or 10 years old, they're all cycling the same. Um, and I'll wrap that up because I know you guys are getting tight on time. Just a little bit, so... Uh, Evan, uh, real quick, how do you uh, do you worry about the heat with your guys? Do you just keep it kind of ambient, or do you give your guys a hot spot? Um, my guys, you know, there is a hot spot. I mean, I keep the their enclosures around 84, um, mm-hmm. you know, as their basking spot. But, you know, their hide spots and, you know, the bottom of their enclosures are between 79 and 80 degrees. Um, mm-hmm. And the ambient temperature and in the room itself is anywhere from 76 to 78. Okay. So it's about and I keep the same. That. Pretty consistent, okay. not too not too hot for any of them. Although, you know, Casper had said to me when we first met, um, I do keep the babies just a little bit warmer, and uh, it tends to stimulate them. They're a little bit more active. Um, mm-hmm. So the babies I've kept. Um, as far as, you know, those captive bred uh, imports, um, I've kept them, you know, 86, 87 in a hot spot. Um, but, 
you know, fill the bottom uh, of their enclosures are, you know, between 79 and 80 degrees. Okay. That pretty, sounds pretty much like Python ambient temperature stuff. So, cool. Yep. So, all right, real quick, before we run out of time, we're pretty much going to blitz down the list and everybody can toss out their information, what the hell they're doing, what they're excited about, anything else they want to throw out there. So, let's start at the top. Um, Ari, go Yo. ahead. Um, yeah, I've got a, uh, um, first off, uh, Sorry, it's late. Hey, uh, a great um, Facebook uh, group that uh, I've gotten up. I think it's been up for uh, a little over a year now. We've got like over 1,300 members, and it's just like fantastic. It's a place for people to come and talk about Bold's Pythons. I'm posting, you know, new data on there that I'm finding for my trips, and, you know, Frederick's on there, Chad's on there, Evan's on there, Keith's on there, I mean, Casper's on there. I mean, we're all, you know, everybody aside from – you know, the people that you're listening to tonight, uh, you know, we've got all these phenomenal uh, questions that are constantly on there. So check it out. It's um, the, uh, uh, sorry, brain fart, uh, the Bones Python uh, Somalia Bull and I group. Uh, and uh, you're welcome to come on there and just, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't feel um, uh, threatened at all by being on this kind of a site. It's, uh, you know, for everybody with any kind of intent of any sort, as long as it's for enjoying these snakes. I mean, you don't have to be mm-hmm. an expert by any means. Um, I also have a, a, a GoFundMe uh, set up for uh, my research stuff that really, really helps out, and it's posted up on that site as well. If you're interested in donating, it's always uh, greatly appreciated. And um, just uh, I've got another trip coming up in January that I'll be heading back out for a couple weeks and visiting another That's spot awesome. and checking some more population stuff and posting more stuff up there for everybody to enjoy and um, wrapping up this book uh the end of next month, uh, finally. So uh, it should be good, too. So um, on to the next. Cool. I'm to have you back on when you get the book done. All right. So, if Casper, Chad, uh, what's going on with you and all your stuff, and what do you want to throw out there? Um, you know, I'm in the I'm in the cool down uh, period right now, cooling everything down. Um, working to obviously try to reproduce the Bowens this year. Uh, if you want to mm-hmm. reach out to me, you can get on my website, ChadGreyReptile.com, or you know, message me through Facebook, ChadGreyReptiles. Uh, all my contact info is on there. Um, but I don't want to elaborate too much on myself because it's not what this this particular show is about. I just kind of want to reelaborate uh, what Ari said. Just definitely, um, we need to to keep funding his research. I mean, his his knowledge and, and what he's learning is imperative to us as keepers and breeders uh, with the further existence of the species. Um, so definitely check out his GoFundMe uh, or or you know even maybe buy one of the awesome skulls that he's producing uh, down there just to help fund uh, the research that he's providing. Obviously, another book is coming out. So anything that we can do to, to help further him along in the field that gives us uh, knowledge and information as he comes back and learns more, uh, let's definitely try to support that. Um, so I, I definitely appreciate you guys having me on the show and getting to chat with all you guys. Um, so I really appreciate it, man. Let's just keep uh, keep moving forward with the species um, and and helping helping Ari get over there and uh, and learn as much information as he can to come back and share with us. Very cool. Awesome. Very cool, and I'm I'm on way too many of Chad's lists as it is. So if he starts breeding bullets, I'm going to be in big trouble. So all right, um, so <laughs> let's go to Keith. Why don't you toss out what's going on with you out there? Um, well, bull and I are my focus. Uh, tree bow is my second passion nowadays. Um, 
I'm always willing to talk snakes. So anybody uh, wants to shoot me any messages on Facebook, please feel free. Um, always willing to talk snakes to anybody at any time and help in any way I can. So please reach out. And I also wanted to reiterate everything Chad said about uh, Ari's research and uh, getting on his site to the GoFundMe and, and donating some cash if you can. And if not, buy some of his artwork, man, because that's a great thing to add to your collection, and it's helping him out uh, raise money to, to get over there and do what we need him to do. So let's support the people that are really supporting us and um big believer in giving everything we can to uh, anybody doing this kind of research. So I'm pushing that myself, uh, anybody that can do it. Let's, let's get on it and get it done. Definitely. And uh, last but not least, Evan, you want to throw your stuff out there, you can. Yeah, last but not least, no problem. Um, <laughs> well, I guess what I'm I'm looking forward to is I got uh, four Frederick's babies uh, that will be added to my collection uh, in the next couple of months. And awesome. uh, I just picked up a uh, female today, which I haven't named yet, and if uh, uh, Eric and Owen want to do like a rock, paper, scissors type of thing, and, uh, you know, I have no problem naming her uh, either Owen or uh, Eric. <laughs> That's okay with you guys. <laughs> you need- uh, I'll, let, I'll let Eric take this one. Um, uh, so you, I'll get the next one, all right? Well, I was so, thinking maybe I could call her o- o- Onita or something like that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, mix Knock the names. There you go. I love it. <laughs> but... You know, o- overall, I'm making the best effort to uh, travel a little bit, you know, to uh, make uh, shows that are not, you know, local to me, you know, like our White Plains or Hamburg shows, but I'll be at the uh, Reptile uh, uh, Super Show in California in L.A. Uh, in January, and uh, also I'll make my way, if Frederick's serious about, you know, stepping onto American soil, uh, I'll be out there at the uh, uh, NARCB. Uh, that he'll be attending, and uh, you know, trying to talk Bowens as much as possible, and you know, doing the snake thing. Awesome. So, awesome. Eric, it is. I'll, I'll show you, <laughs> you guys a picture of, 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 of the feeding cards. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Good man. Uh, Very cool. So, uh, all right, we I, have absolutely two minutes. Uh, before oh, we go, and I, <laughs> I just wanted to uh, to thank everybody that came on and donated their time, and um, I think it's very, very important. Uh, one of the things that I always hear from people back that listen to this show, a lot of new people listen to the show, a lot of people that are just getting into, uh, sometimes people that don't even keep carpets or morelia or anything like that, and they just get in it, and they hear all these crazy stories about whether it's Bolins or Chondros or um, the more, uh, you know, uh, niche-type uh, pythons that are out there, and um, you guys sharing your information and, and your knowledge, and whether it's from the wild aspect or the cap aspect or the breeding aspect is uh is just priceless and uh I, I I I can't thank these guys enough. Uh yeah. I have to chime into and just say that uh you know oh did it cut off? I don't know. It didn't. You still there, Owen? I I'm right here. 